This is why the U.N. has report after report about prison rape in the United States and black men's victimization by giving the false, the, the, the numbers of exonerations and, you know, false convictions, but nobody wants to talk about it. And it's sad because this, this is really us cutting down history to fit within certain disciplinary, you know, lenses, and that, get, that gets passed down into society because we're not educating children about slavery, including the rape of black men. We're not educating people or students about slavery, including, you know, the sexualization of black male bodies, and, part, and it's part of the reason of the castration during lynching. We simply hold on to these mythologies that are based in narrow heteronormative myths and disciplinary politics like feminism that are essentializing certain relationships between bodies and missing out on the terror that black men and boys uh, and black people generally experience at the hands of white supremacist institutions and peoples. Wow. I'm, I'm deviating just for a moment because uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to lose my spot, but I'm, I'm deviating because what you just said, it jogged my memory uh, when you were with us in 2014. Uh, you mentioned the book uh, Picking Cotton, uh, which is about Ronald yeah. Cotton, this black male in North Carolina. He did, I think, about 11 years uh, in prison where a white woman uh, falsely picked him in a lineup and said that he had raped her. Uh, and he did 11 years before they got DNA evidence that uh, exonerated him. And keep in mind that FBI report that just came out about how they had been given bogus uh, information on this hair to keep that in mind as well. But at any rate, I read that book about a month ago. Man, it is incredible. Like, uh, yeah. It, for just for listeners, it like alternates, right? So it goes like one chapter you hear from the white woman and she's giving her details about the trial and blah, 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 and the night she was raped. And then the next chapter, it goes with Mr. Cotton. And he talks about his experience through all of this, when the night he was picked out of the lineup and his 11 years in prison. It, just to give you one quick, quick anecdote, his family, they, they're coming to visit him. He's been in prison, as I said, you know, closing in on a decade. They eventually even move him out of state. He's in prison in Tennessee, so he can't even see his family. So his family comes to visit him for Christmas and they end up arriving, I think, like 45 minutes late. And so the white guards don't allow them to see Mr. Cotton. And it takes a while for him to even figure this out. So he's stressed, wondering what's going on. He's all excited, blah, blah, blah. They brought all this food and nothing. I mean, it's just it's heart wrenching <laughs> reading this. But it was so revealing because there would be chapters and segments where she would be just talking about how she wishes death on him and his family and oh, I hate him. But even, even when they find out that Mr. Cotton didn't rape her, they get the DNA results back, her first response is, oh my gosh, I need to get security. He's going to come kill me. He's going to be so mad. And his response is just, you know, I'm moving forward. I don't wish anything bad. I just want to move forward with my life and, you know, go go do about my business. I don't have any, any ill will for her. It, it was an amazing read for, on so many levels and his quickness to forgive her. Um, just just what you said sparked my memory. Do you have any, any thoughts or any, any profound things that you recall from the book? Well, I mean, I remember reading the book for for the research I'm doing on this on this book, actually, you know, which is, the, you know, on black men and false accusations, et cetera. I was I was struck by the conversational tone of it, that that somehow it's okay. You see, this is the problem I have is that it it puts the burden on these black men who are exonerated to take the high road of forgiveness, and and that's the theme that runs through the whole book, and it's something that I was very very uncomfortable with, uh, because what 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 ends up happening is that you see an injustice for a false rape accusation, and inevitably people say, well, even though that's true. The, the 
idea, the, the most important thing is that, you know, we're prosecuting rape. But what we're not talking about is how rape has historically been used as a mechanism to oppress black men. So when we get these types of books, I think the problem is that it, it, lends, it lends to this narrative that there's not a sexual violence against black men. You see what I'm saying? That we, can, that we can look at this, that we can say, hey, this happened, but it was a mistake, and both people grew from it. As if there's something to grow, like you can grow from time in prison. You know, and, and it's, just, it's infuriating because there's so much denial about the specific sexual oppression that black men suffer at the hands of white women, both through rape and through, you know, uh, false incarceration or, or false accusations and convictions that, you know, there's no way that forgiveness should even be a part of that. You know, unless you're talking about at the individual level, like how do they, you know, how do they deal with it? But you know, it's just like this situation with Glenn Ford. You know, and they did they did the uh, the video, and the guy, the DA put him in jail for 30 years, and he asked forgiveness, and the guy said no. And some people were like, "Wow, you know, this is this is spectacular." How did he say no? This you you you're taking away black men's lives, poor working class black men's lives, and he ends up dying a few months later, you know, of cancer. So what is like what is what does it mean to to have a life lost? If your idea is that, well, as long as we protect the white woman, then everything becomes okay. Then it's justifiable. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no way that you can legitimize or justify that type of thing. And I think that, you know, picking cotton is an example of what happens when there, there's an attempt to reconcile this. And it ends up being the, the, the language of forgiveness without a real evaluation of what happens to other black men and other black boys who are falsely accused of rape and sexual assault. Even I think the title, at least for me, as I read it, I think the title says a lot. Uh, and then oh, yeah. when you read the time, I mean, it's it is incredible. It is it is def- in my opinion, it's it is a fascinating counter racist study. If you want to check it out, picking cotton. Uh, as I said, I was not well, it's gonna- spectacular. It's it's really spectacular given given what he went through. You know, context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date thursday december 30th 2021 so i have been told this is our final book club study session of 2021 uh it even took me a while to realize 2022 if we get there 10 years of the cows book club uh at some point i'll have to do a a roll call uh and read all the books that we have covered uh over the past decade which is a pretty impressive list if i do say so myself but presently we are reading alice siebold lucky detailing the wrongful rape conviction of Mr. Anthony Broadwater, who served 16 years. We'll be picking up on Chapter 6. The audio segment that we heard at the beginning, uh, that was Dr. Tommy J. Curry, guest on the program many, many times. That was specifically his fifth visit to the cows in the spring of 2015. Incidentally, Dr. Curry, we read his book, The Man Knot, on the book club as well that was back in 2018 uh, at the time of that audio segment the man not had not even been published uh, he was talking about his research towards getting it published at the time anyway that segment you heard us discussing the book picking cotton 
Uh, as explained, uh, they take turns. White woman, just like Alice Siebold, picked out the wrong Negro, saying that he raped her. Matthew Cotton serves 11 years. Mr. Broadwater served 16 years. They actually got DNA evidence to exonerate uh, Mr. Cotton uh, in his case. Uh, that is... Maybe we'll read that book uh, at some point. Uh, but I thought that was so relevant. And just again to point out, why is that in a system of white supremacy? Why are there so many books, movies, plays about raping black males? Why is that so ubiquitous in the culture of white supremacy? How many books do we need? on raping black males I had just gone through and talked about some to kill a mockingbird and then I mean these are like hugely popular these are not you know one time publishing but I mean why is that such a core element that we keep needing to recap even birth of a nation I mean some of the most popular pieces of literature in the canon of white culture are about raping black males gotta be a reason for that you can go back and hear Dr. Curry uh, that entire broadcast uh, where he talks about that and not being able to think of a black male as a victim of sexual violence by white women or white men can only conceive of the black male as a potential raping beast we will go ahead and get started uh, again there is a pseudonym in use for Mr. Anthony Broadwater that pseudonym uh, is Gregory Madison so people can be thinking like us anagrams move the letters around see if you find anything interesting like Dr. Welsing America I am race anagrams Anywho, we will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy. One decade on the Cows Book Club. Alice Siebold, Lucky. Audio segment number one. In my senior year of high school, I had applied to three colleges. Syracuse University, Emerson College in Boston, and the University of Pennsylvania, where I was supposed to have gotten in, a cinch as a faculty child. I did not want to go to Penn, or at least that's how I remember it. I had watched my sister move in and then quickly out of a dorm on Penn's campus, bring her possessions back to my parents' house, and commute her first year. If I had to go to college, which I spent the better part of four years in high school saying I didn't want to do, I wanted it to have the benefit of being far away. My parents humored me. They were desperate for me to go to college. They saw it as an essential gateway, the thing that had changed their own lives, particularly my father's. Neither of his parents had finished high school, and the shame of this was like an ache to him. His academic achievements were fueled by a need to distance himself from his mother's bad grammar and his father's drunken, dirty jokes. In my junior year of high school, my father and I visited Emerson where long-haired students he called throwbacks advised me on how to break what they saw as oppressive rules. You aren't supposed to have any electrical appliances, 
said the resident assistant of the dorm we toured. He had dark brown dirty hair and a scruffy beard. To me, he looked like John the bus driver, who had driven me to school during junior high and had dropped out of high school. Both these boys had the smell of true, authentic rebellion. They reeked of pot. I got a toaster oven and a hair dryer, this John boasted, pointing toward a grease-coated toaster oven wedged into a set of handmade shelves. Never use them at the same time. That's the trick. Though amused, my father was also shocked by this boy. His mangy looks, his position of authority in the dorms. My father may have been divided. Emerson had the reputation of being an arty school in a town of monoliths like Harvard and MIT. Even Boston University, whose campus we also visited and which my father praised, was far above Emerson's place on the food chain. But I liked Emerson. I liked how when we drove up to it and saw the sign, two of the letters were missing from it. This was my kind of place. I felt I could learn not to make toast and dry my hair at the same time. That night I had fun with my father. This is a rare event. My father does not have hobbies, wouldn't recognize a ball sport if the ball hit him in the head, and there are no cronies, there are only colleagues. The reason for relaxation of any kind is largely beyond him. Fun is boring, he told me as a child, when I attempted to coax him into playing a board game I had set up on the floor. It became one of his favorite phrases. He meant it. But I'd always had a hint that my father could be different away from us and away from my mother, that he had fun in other countries or with his male graduate students. I liked to get my father alone, and on the trip to Emerson, he and I shared a hotel room to save money. The night after a long day in Boston, I slipped into the twin bed nearest the bathroom. My father went down to the lobby to read and perhaps make a call to my mother. I was wound up and couldn't sleep. Earlier, I had gotten a bucket of tiny ice cubes from the hallway. I planned my attack. I took the ice cubes and put them in my father's bed, right down near the feet. I saved the remainder and placed them by my bed. I feigned sleep when my father returned. He changed into his pajamas in the bathroom, brushed his teeth, turned out the light. I could see the outline of him as he pulled the covers back to get inside. I was elated, if a bit frightened. He might just be plain mad. I counted, and then it came. A ferocious yell, followed by cursing. For Christ's sake, what the... I couldn't hold it. I started laughing uncontrollably. Alice? Gotcha, I said. At first he was angry, but then he threw a cube. That was all it took. It was war. I threw back. Our beds were our bunkers. He threw great handfuls, and, retrieving them, I used them as individuals, firing off rounds time to get him just as he was coming up to strike. He was laughing, and so was I. He had tried momentarily to be the parent, but he couldn't hold to it. I got what he thought was too hysterical and reached what my mother called my hyperactive state. So we stopped. But before that, oh, to see my father joyful, laughing. At moments like this, I pretended my father was the big brother I'd never had. It was up to me to instigate. 
but when he was that repressed kid released, my whole heart wanted him to stay that way forever. Like a small-town girl might view Hollywood, I saw Syracuse as my big break. Compared with my sister's proximity to my parents, Syracuse was far away from home, far enough so that I could redefine myself against what I had once been. My roommate was Nancy Pike. She was a roly-poly, overexcited girl from Maine. In the summer, she had found out my name and written me a letter. It was six enthusiastic pages long and regaled me with what she was bringing and their attendant definitions. I have a hot pot. It is a little pot that looks like a coffee percolator, but it's really only for hot water and has a plug that you plug in. It is great for making soups and water for tea, though you should never put soup directly in it. I dreaded meeting her. As my mother, father, and I arrived on move-in day, my head was swimming. This was my new life, and here were all the new people in it. A co-ed dorm held possibilities I dared not outline to my parents. My mother had on her Donna Reed face, which was a particularly sickly smile imbued with positive thinking, dredged up from I never understood where. My father wanted to get the stuff out of the car and get it over with. He was not made, as he pointed out many times that day, for heavy lifting. Nancy had gotten there first, chosen her bed, hung up a rainbow wall hanging, and begun to putter with her belongings. Her parents and siblings had stayed to meet me and my family. My mother's Donna Reed was cracking into panic. My father drew himself up to his full academic Ivy League professor height, the one from which he looked down on everybody who expressed interest in sports or daily life. I was born two centuries too late, he is fond of saying, or I had no parents. I sprung from the earth whole and unique. My mother could always manage a zinger. Your father looks down on everybody because from that height he's hoping they won't see his bad teeth. Weird family Seabold meets excited family Pike. The Pikes filtered out and took Nancy to lunch. The word that suited them best, I think, is crestfallen. Their sweet daughter had drawn a super freak. Nancy and I didn't talk much in the first week. She would bubble, and I would lie in my bunk and stare at the ceiling. At the bright, happy orientation exercises that the resident assistants led us on, okay, we're going to play a game called Living Priorities. Write these down. Studying, volunteer work, rushing sororities. Can anyone tell me what they would choose as a priority and why? My roommate had hand in air. During one interminable afternoon, when the girls of our floor sat cross-legged on the grass outside the dining hall, listening to a lecture on how to do laundry, I thought I had been dropped off at a camp for morons by my parents. I stomped into the dorm. It had been a week, and I had refused to go to the dining hall with the other girls for dinner. When Nancy asked why, I said I was fasting. Later, when I was hungry, I asked her to bring me food. It has to be white food. I said. No colors. Eric Satie ate only white food. My poor roommate brought home mounds of cottage cheese and giant pearl tapioca. I lay in bed, hating Syracuse, and listening to Eric Satie, from whose liner notes my new regime came. One night I heard noise in the room next to mine. Everyone else was at dinner. I went out into the hall. 
A door was slightly ajar. Hello, I said. It was the most beautiful girl on the floor, the one my mother had pointed out on move-in day. Just be glad that gorgeous blonde isn't your roommate. The line of boys would be out the door. Hello. I went in. She had just gotten a whole footlocker of food sent from home. It was open against the wall. After a week of white food, it was an oasis. M&Ms and cookies and crackers and starbursts and fruit leather, products I had never even heard of or wasn't allowed to have. But she wasn't eating. She was braiding her hair, a French braid. I expressed my admiration and told her I'd never been able to do more than simple braids. I'll do it for you if you want. I sat on her bed, and she stood behind me and began to take the small pinches of hair and work a skull-numbingly tight French braid down the back of my head. She finished the braid, and I thanked her and looked in the mirror. We both sat and then laid down on the two twin beds in the room. We were quiet, staring at the ceiling. Can I tell you something? I asked. Sure. I hate it here. Oh, my God, she said, sitting up, flush with permission. I hate it here, too. We ate our way through her trunk of food. I have a memory of actually sitting in the trunk with the food. But this can't be right, can it? Mary Alice's roommate was what we called experienced. She was from Brooklyn. Her name was Debbie, and her nickname was Double D. She smoked and thought little of us. She had a from-home boyfriend who was older, and I mean older, early 40s, but with the agelessness of Joey Ramone. He was a DJ somewhere and had a deep smoker's voice. When he visited, they went to hotels, and Debbie returned to the dorm with her cheeks flushed and clearly, again, disgusted by us. Mary Alice had long toes and would feed me crackers by digging them into the box. We dressed up in stupid outfits, and, with coupons from Cocoa Mix, sent away for a real Swiss Miss cardboard chalet. Debbie began two-timing her boyfriend with a male cheerleader from school. Her new boyfriend's name was Harry Weiner, and, of course, Mary Alice and I had endless fun with that. Once, on a dare, I hid inside the Swiss Miss chalet while Debbie and Harry went at it on the bed. At a certain point, dare or no, I felt too uncomfortable, and crawled on my hands and knees with a cardboard chalet moving with me like some sort of cartoon spy's camouflage over to the door to make my escape. Debbie was incensed. She put in for a room transfer. Mary Alice never stopped thanking me. Within a few weeks of the start of freshman year, a group of girls gathered in the hall outside our rooms. We sat on the floor with our backs against the walls our legs outstretched, or Indian style. The former homecoming queens or future flirts tucked their legs to one side, while the jocks on scholarship, like my friend Linda, didn't think twice about how they sat or looked while surrounded by their peers. Slowly the stories came out, who was and wasn't a virgin. Some were obvious, like Sarah, who sold hash out of her black-lit room, where she had a stereo system that cost more than most of our father's cars, on which she played the classic stoner tracks of Traffic and Led Zepp. Some guys in there, her assigned roommate would say, 
and we would throw this girl a sleeping bag and tell her not to snore. Then there was Chippy. I'd never heard the word before, didn't know it meant whore, thought it actually was her name, and innocently said, Hi, Chippy, how are you? on the way to the showers one morning. She burst into tears and never talked to me again. There was also a girl who was a sophomore and lived at the end of the hall. She dated a townie and modeled for Joel Belfast, a semi-famous painter in the art department. The townie liked to chain her up to her bunk bed, and we would see her leather and ultra-suede bras and panties as she hurried to and from the lavatory in the morning. The townie rode a motorcycle and had an atrophied left leg. Once, on the night the campus security arrived because they were making so much noise, I saw the scar that rose up out of the top of his boot and snaked up past his hip and around the back of his body. She was stoned and screaming on the bed, where she remained chained up. Soon after, she moved into off-campus housing somewhere. These girls and Debbie were the only four on a hall of 50 that I knew for sure weren't virgins. The rest had to be, I assumed, because I was. But even Nancy told a story. She had lost it in a Datsun to her high school boyfriend, Tree in a Toyota, Diane in the basement of a boyfriend's house. Her boyfriend's parents had knocked on the window during the act. The other stories I've forgotten, and remember only that the make of the car became a nickname for various girls. Few were the glorious cases. A boyfriend who had bought a ring, chosen a special night, and brought flowers, or had his older brother's downtown apartment for the day. When these girls spoke, we didn't believe them anyway. It was better to say Datsun, or Toyota, or Ford. It was dues for a peer group, a way to belong. When that evening of revelation was through, Mary Alice and I, among those outside their rooms, were the only two virgins on the hall. These fumbled sexual exploits in the backs of cars or in the basements of someone's parents' house seem wonderful to me. Nancy was ashamed of having lost it, as we all called virginity, in a Datsun, but it was, after all, a normal part of growing up. In letters sent me over the breaks that year, Tree and Nancy were spending every night with their high school boyfriends. For Tree, there was talk of a ring being bought. These girls began to take over my landscape. I also got letters from the boys I'd worked with at my summer job after high school, particularly an older guy named Jean. I begged Jean to send me a photo. Of course, I pretended to the other girls he was more than just a friend, and I wanted evidence to show around. The photo he sent me was clearly a few years old. He was thinner and had more hair, but there was the handlebar mustache that shouted out man. When I finally got the photo, late in the first semester, I showed it around. Mary Alice cut to the core. Is it the 70s still? I feel a disco ball dropping down. Nancy pretended to be impressed, but she and Tree were too busy keeping connected with their real boyfriends, boys they'd gone to high school with, whom they had promised to marry someday. For her part, Mary Alice was obsessed with, in order, Bruce Springsteen, Keith Richards, and Mick Jagger. On the subject of Bruce, for he was our familiar, she was apoplectic. For her birthday, I got a T-shirt made, 
Mrs. Bruce Springsteen, it said, in puffy, too big iron-on letters. She slept in it every night. Honestly, when I look back, I can say I was in love with Mary Alice for most of my freshman year. I loved watching her get away with things and being a troop member in her carefully planned out escapades. Stealing a sheet cake from the dining hall became an operation worthy of James Bond. It involved discovering the tunnel between two dorms that led to the odd door that was always locked. There were keys that needed to be stolen and people who needed to be distracted and finally, late at night, pink cake that needed to be disguised and hustled up to our rooms. But my dorm girlfriends were also fond of the bars on nearby Marshall Street, and by spring they went regularly to fraternity keg parties. I hated fraternity parties. We're just meat, I yelled above the music to Tree, who was ahead of me in the line for the keg. So what, she shouted back. It's fun. Tree became a little sister. Mary Alice was always popular, no matter how she felt. No fraternity house would turn away a natural blonde and her attendant friends. I was taking a poetry class, and in it there were two boys, Casey Hartman and Ken Childs, who were unlike any in my dorm. They were sophomores, so I thought of them as mature. They were art students, taking the poetry class as an elective. They showed me the art building, a beautiful old thing that was yet to be restored. It had studios in it with carpeted platforms for the models in the life studies classes and old couches and chairs that the students crashed in. It smelled like paint and turpentine and was open all night so that students could work because, unlike most majors, you couldn't do your homework for things like metal welding in your room. They pointed out a decent Chinese restaurant and Ken took me to the Emerson Museum in downtown Syracuse. I began to wait for them outside their classes and go to the art openings they and their friends had. They were both from Troy, New York. Casey was on a creative fellowship and never had money. I would run into him, and he would be having tea three times from the same bag for dinner. I only knew pieces of Casey's story. His father was in jail. His mother was dead. It was Casey whom I had a crush on, but he didn't trust all the liberal arts girls who found him romantic, his scars from a birthmark and beatings, things they wanted to cure. He talked fast, like an erupting coffee pot, and sometimes didn't make sense. I didn't care. He was a freak, and so much more human, I believed, than the boys in fraternities or in my dining hall. But Ken was the one who liked me, and who, like me, liked to talk. The three of us formed a frustrated triangle. I complained about how many of the girls at Marion were so experienced and how I felt lame. Ken and Casey were quiet at first, but then it came out. They felt lame, too. When there was a party at the dorm, and kegs were allowed in your room back then, I would leave and go walk on the quad. I would end up in the art building, making instant coffee in the basement, and then sit for hours reading Emily Dickinson or Louise Bogan in the spring-shot sofas and chairs spotted throughout the building. I began to think of this place as my home. Sometimes I would walk back to Marion in hopes the party would be over and find it had seemingly barely begun. I didn't even go inside. I just turned around. 
I slept in the art classrooms on the carpeted platforms meant to warm models' feet. They weren't big enough to stretch out on, so I would curl up into a ball. One night, I was lying in a classroom in the dark. I had closed the door and made a bed in the back. The lights in the hallways were always on, and the light bulbs were covered in mesh cages so they wouldn't break or be stolen. Just as I was nodding off, the door to the hallway opened, and a man stood outlined by the light coming from behind him. He was tall and wearing a top hat. I couldn't see who it was. He turned on the light. It was Casey. Seabold, he said. What are you doing here? I'm sleeping. Welcome, comrade, he said and tipped his hat. I will be your Cerberus for the night. He sat in the dark and watched me sleep. I remember, before I nodded off, wondering if Casey could ever find me pretty enough to kiss. It was the first night I'd ever spent with a boy I liked. I look back and I see Casey as a guard dog. I want to say that under his guard I felt safe, but the person writing this is not the person who curled up on the carpeted platforms inside dark classrooms. The world was not divided for me then as it is now. Ten days later, on the last night of school, I would enter what I've thought of since as my real neighborhood, a land of subdivision where tracks are marked off and named. There are two styles available, the safe and the not safe. The burden of being father and mother to a rape victim fell very heavily on my parents during the summer of 1981. The immediate question that loomed over them was what to do with me. Where should I go? How could I be least damaged? Was it even a consideration for me to return to Syracuse? The option most discussed was Immaculata College. It was too late in the game for me to enter any normal college, which had already accepted its students, both freshmen and transfers, for the following year. But my mother was sure Immaculata would take me, it was a girls' school, and it was Catholic, and she said a major advantage was that I could live at home. My mother or father could drive me the five miles down Route 30 each day and then pick me up when classes were over. My parents' priorities were my safety and the chance not to miss a year of college. I did my best to listen to my mother. My father was so clearly disheartened by her plan that he could barely muster the requisite endorsement. But then he had no other options. From the very beginning, I saw Immaculata as one thing and one thing only. It was a prison. I would be attending it for one reason alone, because I had been raped. It was also ludicrous. The idea of me, me, I said to my parents, attending a religious academy. I had picked theoretical arguments with the deacon of our church, cultivated any obscene narrative I could get my hands on, and imitated Father Bruniger's sermons to the delight of my family and even Father Bruniger himself. I think Immaculata and the threat of it inspired me, more than anything else, to come up with an airtight argument. I wanted to return to Syracuse, I said, because the rapist had already taken so much from me. I was not going to let him take anything more. If I returned home and lived in my bedroom, I would never know what my life would have been like. Also, I had been granted admission to a poetry workshop 
led by Tess Gallagher, and a fiction workshop led by Tobias Wolf. If I did not go back, I would be denied both of these opportunities. Both of my parents knew the one thing I cared about was words. No one of Gallagher's or Wolf's caliber would be teaching at Immaculata. There were no creative writing workshops offered at the school. So they let me go back. My mother still refers to it as one of the hardest things she ever had to do, much harder than any long drive she had to take over many bridges and through countless tunnels. That's not to say I wasn't scared. I was. So were my parents. But we tried to work the odds. I would stay out of the park and my father would get on the phone and write letters to get me a single in Haven Hall, the only all-girls dorm. I would have a private phone installed in my room. I would ask to be escorted by campus security guards if I had to walk after dark. I would not go to Marshall Street alone after 5 p.m. or hang out. I would stay out of the student bars. This didn't sound like the freedom college was supposed to promise, but then I wasn't free. I had learned it as my mother said I learned everything the hard way. Haven Hall had a reputation. Large and circular, set on a concrete base, it was an oddity among the other square or rectangular buildings that comprised the dorms on the hill. The dining hall, which had better food than many others, sat up off the ground. But the weird architecture and the good food were not at the heart of Haven's campus-wide rep. It was the residence. Rumor had it that only virgins and horse lovers, read lesbians, lived in the single rooms of Haven Hall. Soon I knew the Tights and Dykes moniker to include a variety of female freaks. Haven was home to virgins, yes, and to lesbians, but it was also home to jocks on scholarship, rich kids, foreign girls, nerds, and minority girls. There were professionals, those students who traveled a lot and had things like a commercial contract with Chapstick that necessitated flying to the Swiss Alps on the random weekend. There were children of minor celebrities and sluts on the mend, transfer students and older students and girls that for a variety of reasons didn't fit in. It was not a particularly friendly place. I don't remember who lived on one side of me. The girl on the other, an Israeli from Queens, who was attending the SI Newhouse School of Communications and who practiced her radio voice incessantly, was not my friend. Mary Alice and the girls from freshman year, Tree, Diane, Nancy, and Linda, all lived in Kimmel Hall, sister to Marion Hall. I moved into Haven, said goodbye to my parents, and stayed in my room. The next day, I traversed the road from Haven to Kimmel, my skin on fire. I was taking in everyone, looking for him. Because Kimmel was a sophomore dorm, and many of the people from Marion had naturally ended up in Kimmel, I knew most of the girls and boys who lived there. They knew me, too. It was as if, when they caught sight of me, they had seen a ghost. No one expected I would come back to campus. The fact that I did made me weirder still. Somehow my return licensed them to judge me. After all, by returning, hadn't I asked for this? In the lobby of Kimmel, I ran into two boys who had lived below me the year before. They stopped dead when they saw me, but didn't speak. I looked down, 
stood in front of the elevator and pressed the button. A few other boys came in the front door and greeted them. I didn't turn around, but when the elevator arrived, I stepped in and turned to face the front. As the doors closed, I saw five boys standing there, staring at me. I could hear it without needing to stick around. That's the girl that got raped the last day of school, one of the boys who knew me would say. What else they said and what they wondered, I've kept myself from imagining. I was having enough trouble just walking paths and riding elevators. But the second floor was a girls' hall, so I thought the worst was over. I was wrong. I got off the elevator and someone rushed to me, a girl I had barely known from freshman year. Oh, Alice, she said, her voice dripping. She took my hand without asking and held it. You've come back. Yes, I said. I stood there and looked at her. I had a memory of borrowing her toothpaste once in the bathroom. How can I describe her look? She was oozing. She was sorry for me and thrilled to be talking to me. She was holding the hand of the girl who had been raped on the last day of school freshman year. I didn't think you'd return, she said. I wanted my hand back. The elevator had descended and risen again. A crowd of girls got off. Mary Beth, the girl standing with me said. Mary Beth, over here. Mary Beth, a plain, homely girl whom I didn't recognize, came over. This is Alice. She lived on the hall in Marion with me last year. Mary Beth blinked. Why didn't I move, walk down the hall and get away? I don't know. I think I was too stunned. I was understanding a language I'd never keyed into before. This is Alice, translated to, the girl I told you about, you know, the raped one. Mary Beth's blink told me that. If it hadn't, her next comment sure did. Wow, this homely girl said. Suze told me all about you. Mary Alice interrupted this exchange, coming out of her room nearby and seeing me. Often, because of Mary Alice's beauty, people thought of her as a snob if she didn't go out of her way with them. But for me, in a moment like this, people's reactions to her were a plus. I was still in love with her, and now my adulation included everything she was that I no longer was. Fearless, faith-filled, innocent. She took me to her room, which she was sharing with Tree. All the girls of freshman year, save Nancy, were there. Tree tried with me, but we would never recover from that moment in the shower after the rape. I was uncomfortable. Then there was Diane. She was patterning herself so heavily after Mary Alice, imitating her language and trying to compete in coming up with dopey schemes, that I didn't trust her. She greeted me kindly, if eagerly, and watched our mutual idol for her cues. Linda stayed by the window. I had liked Linda. She was muscular and tan and had close-cropped black curls. I like to think of her as the jock version of me, an outsider who got along by having something that distinguished her in the group. She was a top-rung athlete. I was a weirdo, just funny enough to fit in. Perhaps it was a kind of guilt at the memory of passing out that accounted for Linda's inability to meet my gaze for very long. I don't remember who it was that day or how it got around to this, but someone asked me why I had even come back. It was aggressive. 
The tone it was asked in implied that in having come back, I had done something wrong, something not normal. Mary Alice caught the tone and didn't like it. She said something short and sweet, like, because it's her fucking right, and we left the room. I counted my blessing in Mary Alice and didn't stop to count my losses. I was back in school. I had classes to attend. Some first impressions are indelible, like mine of Tess Gallagher. I was registered for two of her classes, her workshop and a sophomore-level survey course of literature. The survey course was at 8.30 a.m., two days a week, not a popular time slot. She walked in and strode to the front of the room. I was sitting in the back. The first day sizing up ritual began. She was not a dinosaur. This was good. She had long brown hair held back by combs near her temples. This hinted at an underlying humanity. Most noticeable, though, were her highly arched eyebrows and Cupid's bow lips. I took this all in while she stood silent in front of us and waited for the stragglers to settle and for backpacks to be zipped or unzipped. I had pencils ready, a notebook out. She sang. She sang an Irish ballad a cappella. Her voice was at once lusty and timorous. She held notes bravely and we stared. She was happy and mournful. She finished. We were stunned. I don't think anyone said anything, no dumb questions about whether they were in the right class. My heart, for the first time back in Syracuse, filled up. I was sitting in the presence of something special. That ballad confirmed my choice to return. Now, she said, looking at us keenly, if I can sing a ballad a cappella at 8.30 in the morning, you can come to class on time. If you think that's something you can't manage, then drop. Yes, I said inside my head. Yes. She told us about herself, about her own work as a poet, about her early marriage, her love of Ireland, her involvement in Vietnam War protests, her slow path toward becoming a poet. I was rapt. The class ended with an assignment out of the Norton Anthology for the next class. She left the room as the students packed up. Shit, a boy in an L.L. Bean t-shirt said to his female companion in a DeFi-E t-shirt. I'm out of here. This lady's a fruitcake. I gathered my books with Gallagher's reading list on top. Besides the required sophomore Norton, she recommended 11 books of poetry that were available at an off-campus bookshop. Elated by this poet and having hours to pass before my first fiction workshop with Wolf, I bought tea in a place underneath the chapel and then crossed the quad. It was sunny out, and I was thinking of Gallagher and imagining Wolf. I liked the name of one of the books she'd listed, In a White Light by Michael Burkhard. I was thinking of that and reading the Norton while I walked, when I ran into Al Tripodi. I didn't know Al Tripodi. As was becoming more and more common, Al Tripodi knew me. You came back, he said. He took two steps forward and hugged me. I'm sorry, I said. I don't know you. Oh, yeah, he said. Of course. I'm just so happy to see you. He had startled me, but he was happy. Truly so. I could see it in his eyes. 
He was an older student, balding, and with a vibrant mustache that struggled for attention with his blue eyes. His face may have seemed older than he was. The lines and creases in it reminded me of those I later saw on men that thrilled in riding motorcycles cross-country with no helmets on. It came out that he had something to do with campus security and was around the night I was raped. I felt awkward and exposed, but I liked him too. It also made me mad. I couldn't get away from it. I began to wonder how many people knew, how far the news had spread, and who had spread it. My rape had made the city paper, but my name wasn't used, just Syracuse co-ed. Yet I reasoned my age, and even the name of my dorm, could still make me one of fifty. Naively, perhaps, I hadn't known I would have to deal with this question every day. Who knew? Who didn't know? But you can't control a story, and mine was a good one. People, even naturally respectful ones, felt emboldened in the telling because the assumption was that I would never choose to return. The police had placed my case in the inactive file when I left town. My friends, save Mary Alice, had done the same. Magically, I became story, not person, and story implies a kind of ownership by the storyteller. I remember Al Tripodi because he saw me not merely as the rape victim. It was something in his eyes, the way he placed no distance between the two of us. I developed a sensing mechanism, and it would register immediately, does this person see me or rape? By the close of the year, I came to know the answer to that question, or so I thought. I got better at it, at least. Often, because it was too painful, I chose not to ask it. In these exchanges, where I shut off so I could order a coffee or ask another student for a pen, I learned to close a part of myself down. I never knew exactly how many people connected what had been in the paper or the rumors that had come out of Marion Dorm with me. I heard about myself sometimes. I was told my own story. You lived in Marion, they would ask. Did you know that girl? Sometimes I listened to see what they knew how the game of telephone had translated my life. Sometimes I looked right at them and said, yes, that girl was me. In class, Tess Gallagher was keeping my pencil busy. I wrote down in my notebook that I should be writing poems that mean, that to tackle the hardest things, to be ambitious, was what Gallagher expected of us. She was tough. We were to memorize and recite because she had had to as a student, a poem a week. She made us read and understand forms, scan lines, had us write a villanelle and a sestina. By shaking us up, using a rigorous approach, she hoped to both encourage us to write poems that meant and to dispel any belief that feigning despond was what created good poetry. It got so you knew, very quickly, what would get Gallagher riled. When Raphael, who had a pointed goatee and a waxed mustache, said he hadn't a poem to turn in because he was happy and he could only write when he was depressed, Gallagher's Cupid's bow lips pursed. Her preternaturally raised eyebrows raised farther, and she said, Poetry is not an attitude. It is hard work. I had not written anything about the rape except journal entries in the form of running letters to myself. I decided to write a poem. 
It was awful. As I recall it now, it ran five pages, and rape was only a muddled metaphor that I tried to contain inside a wordy albatross that purported to be about society and violence and the difference between television and reality. I knew it wasn't my best, but I thought it showed me to be smart, to be able to write poems that meant, but also had format. I divided it into four sections, using Roman numerals. Gallagher was kind. I hadn't turned the poem in to be workshopped, so we met in her office for a conference. Her office, like Tobias Wolfe's across the hall, was small and crowded with books and reference materials. But whereas Wolfe's looked like he hadn't quite settled in, Gallagher seemed like she had been there for years. Her office was warm. She had tea in a mug on her desk. A colorful Chinese silk shawl was draped across the back of her chair, and that day her long, wavy hair was held back by sequined combs. Let's talk about this poem you've given me, Alice, she said. And somehow I ended up telling her my story. And she listened. She was not bowled over, not shocked, not even scared of the burden this might make me as her student. She was not motherly or nurturing, though she was both those things in time. She was matter-of-fact, her head nodding in acknowledgment. She listened for the pain in my words, not to the narrative itself. She was intuiting what it meant to me, what was most important, what, in that confused mass of experience and yearning she heard in my voice, she could single out to give back. Have they caught this guy? she asked after listening to me for some time. No. I have an idea, Alice, she said. How about you start a poem with this line? And she wrote it down. If they caught you. If they caught you long enough for me to see that face again, maybe I would know your name. I could stop calling you the rapist and start calling you John or Luke or Paul. I want to make my hatred large and whole. If they found you, I could take those solid red balls and slice them separately off as everyone watched. I have already planned what I would do for a pleasurable kill, a slow, soft ending. First, I would kick hard and straight with a boot into you, stare while you shot quick and loose, contents a bloody pink hue. Next, I would slice out your tongue. You couldn't curse or scream. Only a face of pain would speak for you, your thick ignorance through. Thirdly, should I hack away those sweet cow eyes with the glass blades you made me lie down on? Or should I shoot with a gun close into the knee where they say the cap shatters immediately? I picture you now, your fingers rubbing sleep from those live blind eyes while I rise restlessly. I need the blood of your hide on my hands. I want to kill you with boots and guns and glass. I want to fuck you with knives. Come to me, come to me, come die and lie beside me. When I finished this poem, I was shaking. I was in my room at Haven Hall. Despite its wobbles as a poem, its heavily plath-influenced rhymes, or what Gallagher later called overkill in many places. It was the first time I'd addressed the rapist directly. I was speaking to him. 
Gallagher loved it. Now that's the ticket, she said to me. I had written an important poem, she told me, and she wanted it to be workshopped. This was a big step. This meant sitting in a room with 14 strangers, one of them, as it happened, Al Tripodi, and basically telling them I had been raped. Buoyed by Gallagher, but still afraid, I agreed to do it. I worried over a title. Finally, I made up my mind. Conviction. I passed the poem out, and then, as was standard practice, I read it aloud to my fellow students. I was, as I read it, hot. My skin blushed, and I could feel the blood rush to my face, prickle along the tops of my ears and the ends of my fingers. I could feel the class around me. They were riveted. They were staring at me. When I was done, Gallagher had me read it again. Before she did this, she told the class that she expected everyone to comment. I read it again, and this time it felt like torture, an instant replay of something that had been hard enough the first time. I still question why Gallagher was so insistent that I workshop conviction, and that each and every student, this was not standard, respond to it afterward. It was an important poem by her standards in that it dealt with important material. Perhaps by her actions, she meant to emphasize this not only to the class, but to me as well. But the eyes of most of my peers had a hard time meeting mine. Who wants to start? Gallagher asked. She was direct. By her example, she was telling the class, this is what we do here. Most of the students were shy. They buried their response in words like brave or important or bold. One or two were angry that they had to respond, felt the poem, combined with Gallagher's admonition that they react, was an act of aggression on her part and mine. Al Tripodi said, You don't really feel that way, do you? He was looking right at me. I thought of my father. Suddenly there was no one else in the room. Like what? You don't want to shoot him in the knees and that other stuff with the knives. You can't feel that way. Yes, I do, I said. I want to kill him. The room was still. Only Maria Flores, a quiet Latino girl, had yet to speak. When Gallagher told her it was her turn, she passed. Gallagher pressed. Maria said she could not speak. Gallagher said she could formulate her thoughts during the break and then speak. Everyone must comment, she said. What Alice has given you is a gift. I think it's important that everyone recognize this and respond to her. You are joining her at the table by speaking. We took a break. Al Tripodi quizzed me further out in the flagstone hall near the display case where faculty publications and awards sat on dusty glass shelves. I stared down at the dead bugs that had gotten stuck inside. He could not understand how I could write those words. I hate him, I said. You're a beautiful girl. Presented with this for the first time, I was unable to recognize something I would come up against time and time again. You could not be filled with hate and be beautiful. Like any girl, I wanted to be beautiful, but I was filled with hate. So how could I be both for Al Tripodi? I told him about a dream I had over and over again those days, a daydream. 
Somehow, I wasn't sure how, I could get at the rapist and do anything to him that I wanted. I would do those things in my poem, I told Tripodi, and I would do worse. What is there to gain by that, he asked me. Revenge, I said. You don't understand. I guess I don't. I feel sorry for you. I scrutinized the dead bugs on their backs, how their legs went out and then shot back in at sharp angles, how their antennae fell in stilled, fragile arcs like lost human eyelashes. Tripodi could not see it because I didn't move a muscle, but my body was a wall of flames. I would not take pity. Anybody's. Maria Flores did not come back to class. I was infuriated. They just couldn't deal, I thought, and this made me angry. I knew I was not beautiful, and in Gallagher's presence for three hours that day, I didn't have to care about being beautiful. She, by writing that first line down, by workshopping the piece, had given me my permission slip. I could hate. Exactly one week later, Gallagher's If They Caught You would turn out to be all too prescient. On October 5th, I ran into my rapist on the street. By the end of that night, I could stop calling him the rapist and start calling him Gregory Madison. I had workshop that day with Tobias Wolfe. Wolfe, whom I met the same day I did Gallagher, was a harder sell. He was a man, and at the time, men had to surprise me before I even so much as thought about trusting them. He was not a performer. He made it clear that his personality was not the issue. Fiction was. So I, who had decided to be a poet and had lucked into this fiction thing, took a wait-and-see attitude. I was the only sophomore in Wolf's class and the only one to wear weird clothes. The fiction writers wore a lot of starch and denim, shirts emblazoned with sports teams or upright plaids. Poets flowed. They did not, most certainly, wear shirts emblazoned with the logos of sports teams. I saw myself as a poet. Tobias Wolfe, with his military posture and never indirect analysis of a story, was not my bag. Before class, I needed to get something to eat. I walked down to Marshall Street from Haven. I'd been in Syracuse for a month and begun to make quick trips to Marshall Street, as everyone did, for snacks and school supplies. There was a mom-and-pop store that I liked. It was run by a Palestinian man in his 60s who often told stories and who had an emphasis when he said good day that told me he meant it. I was walking down the street when I saw, up ahead, a black man talking to a shady-looking white guy. The white guy stood in an alleyway and talked over the top of the fence. He had long brown hair to his shoulders and a few days' growth of beard. He wore a white T-shirt whose sleeves were rolled up to accentuate the small bellies of his biceps. The black guy I could only see from the back, but I was hyper-aware. I went through my checklist. Right height, right build, something in his posture, talking to a shady guy. Cross the street. <laughs> that is where we are wrapping up at for this uh for the first section the checklist i went through my checklist 
right height, right build, something in his posture, talking to a shady guy across the street. Gotta be something nefarious if he's talking to a shady white man. Gusty Renegade, the black O.J. Simpson, so that is the first audio segment of Alice Siebold's Lucky. The number to dial, if you have thoughts, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Still snowing here in Seattle. Arctic death spiral continues, 2021, determined to kill us one way or the other. Number again, 720-716-7300, decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, the email is untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com. Feel free to write in. Lots of folks emailed. I don't know if that just means people were, uh, maybe they're snowy in too, so they don't have anything to do, so they can listen to the book club. Whoopee. Uh, and or they might just be intrigued. Uh, I told folks about the book, so folks might be listening in. Feel free to email untiljustice at gmail.com. See if we can get through all of the letters for this week. So email number one. Greetings. I wanted to comment on this study session just to put things into perspective about the act of rape. White women in particular have done an unfortunate job in distorting the word rape. When people think rape, they assume a man grabbing a woman and taking them to some alley and beating them up and raping them, and the woman screaming and yelling, no. Does that happen? Yes. But that's a rare form of rape. Most rapes are by people you know, close, intimate partners and spouses. Jeffrey Epstein. I was even taught by a white female teacher that if you don't say no, then it's not rape. I say all that to say I was raped by an older white male who I knew and willingly went to his home. I was isolated. Initially, the act was consensual, but he could not enter because I wasn't really attracted to him. Instead of stopping, he brings me a glass of vodka straight. I drink all of it, and this white man makes another attempt and could not enter. It wasn't too long until after a few sips of the first glass that I was drunk. The white man brings another glass of vodka, and I drink that, then pass out. It was only then until after I woke up, he admits he was able to enter and even joked 
and showed me where a piece of skin on his member came off. That's how hard it was for him to enter. For a long time, I didn't know I was raped as none of this was consensual. You can't consent when you are drunk, and you definitely can't if you pass out. I thought because the rape didn't happen, like how the liar Alice Siebold described in her book, then it was rape. The after effects of my rape were prevalent even when I went to the doctor for a checkup, but my definition of rape was skewed. I, too, was a virgin when this happened. The way Alice Siebold described the rape, it seems like someone who has a lot of sexual experience. There's not much talking going on, and if she, like she claims, her head was bashed in, then I don't see where she got the energy or the sharp cognitive abilities to keep proceeding with the rapist's orders. She was yelling, kicking, and screaming, but he was able to get her to go to the second location? Question. Doesn't make sense to me. I did hear a lot of listeners bring up the fact she kept in contact with the rapist for a bit, but that is common, especially for those who were victims of rape like how I was. I, too, kept in contact with my rapist because I didn't know I was a victim. Now, the after effects of this was that I never made jokes or comments about what happened like Alice Siebold. People deal with trauma differently, but the sense of shame makes you not want to talk about what happened. Alice Siebold's book comes off like a sick fantasy she wants to experience. The way she describes things with all these sexual innuendos makes it even more obvious. I look at a photo of her, and she's extremely unattractive. One thing I noticed in general when women feel rejected by white males, they project and take their frustrations out on black males to cope. Just putting things into perspective from an actual victim of such a crime. One of our listeners uh, who wrote in, much obliged for sharing. I know that is not... Um, it takes a lot, I think, of courage to be willing to step forward and share, even to write in uh, something like that. So thank you kindly uh, for being willing to share about your experience. And um, all I can say, if we have any folks, because I think everyone that we've heard from thus far has said that they are a little suspicious or a lot suspicious, maybe greatly suspicious of Alice Siebold and thinking, eh, maybe she's not being truthful with us. Maybe, in fact, there was no crime. Maybe there wasn't a rapist at all. 
Anthony Broadwater or anybody else. If there's anybody who thinks that there was a crime, that this did happen, it just it was not Anthony Broadwater, but she was raped. Maybe it wasn't even a black person, but she was raped. If we have folks who, you know, that's what you think, feel free to share. Again, all of the reports thus far, they've said that this is terrible what happened to Mr. Broadwater. Alice Ebold was raped. She didn't lie about that. Just, and she didn't even lie about Anthony Broadwater, that this was just an error. She just picked the wrong Negro. That's the way it's been reported, not that this was a total lie fabrication from beginning to end and that there was a rape. But lots of folks have said, man, lots of this seem a little suspicious, Gusty included. Uh, the email untiljustice at gmail.com, the number 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Don't wait till the last moment. We have lots of emails to get through. So, folks, a lot of gagging. We can punch through our emails. Uh, let's see, folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. May I be heard? Uh, let's see, Dread138. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, good evening, callers, good evening, listeners, good evening, Gus. Um, I took on your um, homework, and I, um, the Gregory Madison uh, anagram, just by viewing it, you can, also, you can form the word Negro. And then I used the um, anagram generator, and it generated quite a few words, uh, syndrome, demagogy, um, demagogy. I'm not pronouncing it right, and, and Dominic, and, pardon me, and Dogamy, E-N-D-O-G-M-E-A-Y, G-E-N-D-O-G-A-M-Y, custom of marrying within the limits of a local custody, local community plan of tribe, and dairy man with, you know, some of the few letters left over form in other words, but most fascinating of all, the um, generator um, generated the word misandry, egg, and or as a result. Uh, let's see, in chapter six, um, the, the whole passage about Eric Sadi eating only white food, um, I found struck, stuck out to me um, as a fascinating thing. And the continued focus on white female virginity, that whole section of Harry Weiner and her continued preoccupation with the genitalia, perhaps is a uh, wealthy moment. And then the other section where she talks about Chippy, she's feigning ignorance about the importance of the words, but her family have debates about definitions and words, and she wants to be a pro, um, wants to be a poet, yet doesn't know Chip, Chippy as a um, pejorative. And one last thing I want to offer, um, I actually got a hold of, the paperback of Lucky, which um, offers a um, read of questions and a transcript, which mirrors the um, 
posting you had for Charlie Rose, where she's, I guess it came out about the same time, um, 2002. So if you would like me to send that to you, I'll send it to you. So it's a PDF of different questions um, to um, people who have, that might be um, participating in the, in the book club. And one definitely does cover the question of race. And some of, the, some of the questions, I'll come back to that. But I'll be my line for now. Thank you. Fascinating. Uh, Dread138, uh, who was one of the folks who volunteered, uh, who was going to narrate. Wow, the anagrams. Endogamy. I think you said Miss Andre. Egg. Uh, a white people in general. Boggle and all of that, where you're scrambling letters around to make new words and seeing how many different words that you can make out of you know one or two words, maybe those are huge games amongst white people. And if her family is having brawls at the dinner table, where they got to go get you know the enormous unabridged dictionary, and she's taking poetry classes in school and all the rest of it and writing books, that seems like a household where they may know about anagrams. Just maybe. Much obliged, Shred138. Homework assignment. I would love the PDF if it's not too much trouble. Uh, if, if you can send it along, I guess, email. I'll share with other folks if they're interested in, you know, homework. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with the hand up? Uh, folks are maybe getting their thoughts together. We will crank through the emails. Let's see. We got one. Next email, email number two. All right, so this one. Uh, da, da, da. Give thanks, Mr. Gus. I'm reading along. Through the last program, Lucky Part 2, her story sounds very untrue. Got another one. I starred and highlighted all the jokes about her race. The family therapist is joking about it. She also, so is the author, Alice Ebel. Also, the father doesn't seem to believe her story. Her own mother doesn't even want to hear her story. She is telling the boys she meets about her so-called rape. I would suspect a person who's been raped to save that very personal information for someone they have spent a lot of time with, not strangers he is kissing for a night. Sounds untrue and illogical. I'll be listening in on the next program. That is number two. More emails to come. Uh, let's see. might share a thought or two, give folks an opportunity to get some of their uh, thoughts together just so that we don't run out of time. Again, if you're listening in, have thoughts. Don't wait till the last moment. Uh, let's see. First few notes that I took in Chapter 6. She t I mean, they talk about affirmative action, which the person who's benefited most, Alice Siebold, 
white women. But she talks about not only was she accepted at Syracuse, uh, how easy it would have been for her to get in the University of Pennsylvania uh, because lineage got uh, fat, or her dad is teaching there. Uh, and they talk about that's one of the many, many ways uh, that the so-called playing field is not level uh, because they've got all the legacy admissions and all the rest of it, and black people don't have the same opportunity to have this because they had so many direct white supremacist laws that kept black people from attending UK and other universities for many, many years, decades. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Next, she talks about her dad, uh, his drunken, dirty jokes. Man, I was wondering if those are some racist jokes in there. She didn't share any, though. Uh, she talks about making this uh, visit to Emerson uh, for school. Uh, she talks about meeting this uh, white person. Again, she does not identify white people racially. She only identifies non-white people. Notice that trend. I picked that up last week. Only non-white people are identified racially. White people are just normal. She does not make any reference or call attention to the fact that they are white, except the shady white guy who is with the rapist. We'll get to that later. Uh, but she talks about John, who at Emerson is supposed to be this rebellious, so-called hippie white man, and how he had the true smell of rebellion. He reeked of pot, and I thought, like, wow, this is really dated. Like, the number of, probably even for that time, the number of people doing all kinds of drugs, but especially now, like, my God, like, the edibles and everything else that you have, you have people that don't even reek of pot and, you know, are all kinds of not sober. Let's see. Next. She talked about how her dad was about having fun, said fun is boring, uh, and that he didn't bring friends home from work, although she says no cronies, there are only colleagues. Like her dad, he didn't have hobbies, he didn't play sports or anything. I just thought that was odd, like cronies? I generally think of cronies like has like a connotation of criminality like a no-good, uh, an evildoer even. <laughs> like uh, you generally don't describe someone who is just one of the people that you're hanging out with, associate maybe, friend, pal, not a crony. Uh, let's see. She said, my mother had on her Donna Reed face. Uh, this is a reference to a very, very old television program full of white people. Like, leave it to beaver old, way old, almost 100 years old, uh, or at least a good 75. Uh, it reminded me of Woody Allen, like when he's talking about all the stuff from that era of Hollywood, that probably some of the folks that were in Donna Reed, if that show itself was not mentioned uh, when we read uh, Woody Allen's autobiography. Uh, let's see. She, When she's meeting, moving into Syracuse and meeting her roommates and these other white people who are, again, not identified as white, she references herself as a super freak. Now, I guess shout to Rick James. I don't know what she meant by that. Now, by 1981, I guess I could look really quick and see. Now, with super freak Rick James, I, <laughs> I don't know what does that mean, a super freak. Uh, does that mean drugs? 
Is that meaning sexual intercourse? Let's see. When was Rick James super free? Rick, oh, no, 1981. <laughs> I don't know what to say on that one. We just have to put a, put a pin on that one. Yeah. Let's see. The white suit. So the full country says she stomped into the dorm. It had been a week, and I refused to go to the dining hall with the other girls for dinner. Now, I can see some people saying, a white privilege and entitlement. What does it mean to be white? Now, I mean, hey, you can have all kinds of folks who say, hey, adolescents and people that are in youth, whether that's Spellman or Howard or Grambling or Southern or wherever they happen to be, uh, young people do goofy things. You know, they're still trying to mature, and that's why they're students. They're still learning, you know. I reckon, I don't know how many black people at Spellman or Morehouse or North Carolina A&T, I'm not going to the dining hall. I'm staying, staying away. I don't want to go hang out with them. Bring me some food here. What? I guess. And, and then only white food. I have no idea who would pick such a diet. And that sounds about as unhealthy as just eating, I don't know, like cheeseburgers every day, all day long. I mean, only white cottage. Did you hear me? Uh, cottage cheese? Tapio? I was thinking white rice. What are you going to be eating, white bread? You're so limited. Most of the healthy foods that they tell you to eat have lots of color. That's how you know you got the nutrients. That is at least one thing that we got from Nutricide, second worst. Oh, that's the worst, the worst book ever, worst book ever, worst book ever. Colors, lots of colors on your plate. Everybody says that. Former First Lady Michelle Obama. Dr. Ruby Layton, everybody that I know who knows anything about food likes it's the exact opposite. Load your plate up and your diet in general with lots and lots of color, especially colorful fruits and vegetables. The white diet from the super freak indeed. And then they come back from that nonsense, right? So it's I'm only eating white foods to she meets this white woman, Mary Alice, blonde hair white woman, and I want to make sure I get the correct white woman. Yes, Mary Alice. So she meets this blonde white woman who gets a trunk full of junk food, M&M's, what did she say? Here we go. M&M's, cookies, crackers, starbursts, and fruit leather. Straight nonsense, stuff that will kill you. Processed sugar, super, super processed. When we talk about colors, not starbursts and whatever you can get in the candy aisle, licorice sticks and M&Ms and all chocolate, that's a wealthy moment too, uh, fruits, that real fruits, not the made-up uh, wax nonsense that they put all kinds of dye and color and sugar in it. Uh, so they ate their way through her trunk of food. Now, she had already talked about having weight problems, gaining 15 pounds her freshman year, eating this sort of nonsense, I can totally understand. And then you complain about the weight and want to fast and all of that. Just eat healthy foods. Go to the dining hall. Get some fruits and vegetables. Stop stealing sheet cakes. 
Uh, let's see. Oh, my God. Now, you want to talk about rape culture. Now, we heard about UPenn last week. She went to visit her sister's uh, institution where they bragged about raping a white female, put the images on the elevator and what have you. School said it was her fault. Now, this time around, she's talking about Mary Alice's uh, roommate. She said her roommate had a boy, uh, excuse me, had a from home boyfriend who was older, and I mean older, early forties, but with the agelessness of Joey Ramone. I don't know who Joey Ramone is. I don't really care truthfully if somebody wants to see who he is. <laughs> I know who Rich James is. Maybe I should look him up too. But I mean. What in the, and that is real common, Jeffrey Epstein. We're reading this right in the middle of Gisseline Maxwell being convicted yesterday, five counts, sexually trafficking young girls, child rapists. This is real common. In fact, this, I would say, is way more common than old Gregory Madison, old Anthony Broadwater leaping out from the bushes and raping a white woman. No, no. It is way, way, way more. Just call wrote in, I think. Jeffrey Epstein. They might not have all the money to do that, but these older white guys. Oh, my God. Rampant. They don't even have to be 40, per se, but just older white guys that are able to take advantage of these younger. They are, I mean, college age, hey. I'm even thinking younger than that, but I mean certainly colleges and universities, that is super rampant, almost cliche, even professors and what have you. They've got to have scandals and rules about that. You don't have tons of books and what have you indicting all of the older white guys who've done all this. Jeffrey Epstein, that's kind of a new phenomenon. Why I got so much attention? Because that doesn't even happen. But we can talk about the black rapist, old Gregory Madison, Every day. And I mean, 40, if this is like, man, we're talking these could be freshman students. Are we talking about like an 18-year-old? 17 could be sometimes, 19, with a 43-year-old, like you're old enough to be this child's father. And wait a minute, we didn't even finish. Let's continue because, see, let's go through white culture. So... I didn't know Chippy meant uh, someone who, I guess, engages in a lot of sexual activity. I didn't know that either, so shame on me. Still learning. Uh, next, town. I guess they use that word on a lot of different campuses. They said there was a girl who was a sophomore and lived at the end of the hall. She dated a town. Again, I assume all these people are white because she racially identifies the non-white characters. She dated the county and modeled for Joel Belfast, a semi-famous painter in the art department. The county liked to chain her up to her bunk bed, and we would see her leather and ultra-suede bras and panties as she hurried to and from the lavatory in the morning. Now, that's another one. I suspect this county was not the same age. 
I could be wrong. And I mean all of that? My best, Jeffrey Epstein, all that. Chaining someone up and tying them up like they were slaves? Why not a book on that? Just in the first six chapters, with what she talked about, the rate that you pin, the bondage and all that, chains and whips and leather, and then this guy that's almost 45 dating a freshman, that right there is enough for a great book. What is up with the sexual deviance and perversion in white culture? We get to Gregory Madison later, if ever. We got enough right there. Nah. Save that for later. We get back to Gregory Madison. Let's see. And then we get back to virgin. Now, I'm so glad I pointed that out before. I said that. The word virgin in this book, I got the counting. I think it was four or something. I can look again. In the book, dozens of times, all of this emphasis, I said, for me, that's another point that makes this seem a little suspicious. Why is there so much emphasis, significance on white virginity, white purity, white innocence? Why does that have to centrally be the focus amidst all the bondage and being taken advantage of by 40-year-olds and all the rest of it? This insistence or got to really focus all this attention on the purity of white women and having that stolen by a Negro, Negro, she said. Uh, Let's see. And then who's a virgin and all this? I don't even know why are you talking about all of this. If you think some of these people are lying uh, when they're saying this and that's known to happen as well, like is this just, again, that notion that that us thinking white purity and the purity of white women, really I think purity of white people because it extends them being innocent and white Jesus and all the rest of it, he just had a birthday. But the purity of white women, the innocence of white women, using all those words interchangeably. Uh, Let's see. Nancy was ashamed of having lost it, as we called virginity, in a Dotson. And then even, I think it's implied, she lost it, Alice Seabold, allegedly to a Negro, not even just that she was raped, but then she was raped by a savage Negro beast, like, oh, the worst of the worst. Uh, Let's see. The stealing the sheet cake, uh, she talks about all this with Syracuse. Syracuse is private and very expensive uh, to be. It's not just the place where anybody can go and and hang out uh, in upstate New York easily for a lot of reasons. Uh, But then them saying that they went and stole a sheet cake, like, again, I know you got tomfoolery and, you know, these are young people acting a fool, first time away from home and all the rest of it. But, I mean, man, the way that black people like Michael Brown Jr., Cigarillo, strong-arm robbery, white people can brag about these sort of shenanigans, going to steal and loot and do all the rest. Oh, boys will be boys and the girls pranks. Okay. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) 
the drinking said my dorm girlfriends were also fond of the bars on nearby Marshall Street, and by spring they went regularly to fraternity keg parties. I talked about that underage drinking. I hated fraternity parties. We're just me. I yelled above the music to Tree, who was ahead of me in line for the keg. So what, she shouted back. It's fun. Now, again, you could have written an entire book, interrogate all of that. The underage drinking, how that leads to the rapes, and all of that got documentaries, right? Talking about all that. She could have been ahead of the curve. Got some literature published on all that. Nah, nah, nah. Want to do old hats, stick to the same thing, raping Negroes. Let me see. And in the blonde, no fraternity house would turn away a natural blonde and her attendant friends. The power of being white, power of being blonde. Heard that a few times. Virgins, and calling attention to non-white people. This will be the last one I'll get in for right now, and then I'll see if other folks have any comments. Oh, I have other emails. Get through the emails. Uh, she says, the weird architecture and good food were not the heart of Haven's campus-wide reputation. It was the residents. Rumor had it that only virgins and horse lovers read lesbians. Now, I don't know what why that would be picked, horse lovers? What about saying horse lovers signifies lesbian activity or what is thought of as lesbian activity? Still learning. She said, soon I knew the tights and dykes moniker, virgins and lesbians, yikes, to include a variety of female freaks. Haven was home to virgins, yes, and to lesbians, but it was also home to jocks on scholarship, rich kids, foreign girls, nerds, and minority girls. Now, when I looked at this list, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, so there are a lot of freaks, a variety of freaks who live here. So we have rich freaks. Foreign freaks, which is kind of racist too. Uh, nerd freaks, jock freaks, and minority freaks. Now, I mean, maybe if you're an athlete, I've heard some people say that's you know freak athlete and some of the things that they can do with their body. Like maybe I guess. Calling somebody a, a nerd and saying that that's your your freak because of that, eh. like I said, the foreign that's kind of racist anyway. Minority, like I don't. How does that even become a group? Just they had all kinds of freaks. Even had some non-white people here. Oh, couldn't believe what kind of craziness was here. Like what? I don't know how many non-white people they had on the campus of Syracuse at the time. That was way before uh, I was even thinking about going there, way before Carmelo Anthony got there, too. So maybe they didn't have a whole lot of black people at CC, county or otherwise. Uh, let's see. I'll pause there. Let's see. Other folks can dial in if you have commentary. We'll check. And if not, oh, yep. 
Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Can I jump in here? Caller in Ohio. Yes, sir. Ah, what's going on, Gus? Good to uh, drop in on the book reading. One of the uh, things that I found very interesting was the way that uh, when when she talked about the so-called black man that she falsely accused, she ran down a checklist of things as if she was law enforcement when they decide to pull somebody over. If you notice the way she went through a checklist and like, oh, that's our guy. Uh, that's one area that I found interesting. The other area that I find very interesting is uh, the use of animals when they speak, when white folks speak about uh, sexual activities or behavior. She spoke about uh, horse lovers being a substitute word for lesbian females. Uh, you also hear uh, them speak about if, when they're talking about a male phallic that is of large size or if they're referring to the size of a man's genitals, they will oftentimes say, is he hung like a horse? So I found that to be quite interesting, that uh, they seem to have a fascination with sexual behaviors and organs and tying them with animals. My other part that I saw was uh, she seems to be a person who's very jealous. Everybody that she spoke about, in particular females, she was jealous of and or trying to um, make them seem less than in a way to try to lift herself up. But hearing how she spoke about the that white female who was tan and muscular that she, I guess, in a way identified with her, it, it kind of made me ask, does this lady have uh, anti-sexual tendencies? Um, I'm going to mute my line. This is the first time I've actually heard about this book, so I'm interested in hearing what other people's thoughts are. Oh, only other thing I'd say also is the stories that she tells, it made me believe from the jump that this lady was telling a lie. Um, the one email laid out, if you ever have known females who have been sexually assaulted in that fashion in terms of rape, they're not really, they don't joke about it. They're not super forthcoming about it. It's something that after, if they get super comfortable with you and they see it's a trust situation, they might reveal. But, yeah, this lady seems like she was just fishing for uh, white male attention and the easiest way for a white woman to get white male attention is to say that a black guy did something of sexual nature to them. I'll meet my line. Much obliged, sir. Uh, I thought she said a number of times that she loved Mary Alice. Now, some people say that sort of thing, and they just, you know, that's my my friend at the content. Platonic. But, I mean, hey, I am with them. But I mean, she said it a couple times, and she gave such physical descriptions, it made me wonder, like, mm. I mean, you said, like, anti-sex, and then she's focusing on this other white woman with the short curly hair and is toned athletic and something to think about. And she's already talked about the horse lovers and tights and dykes that she lived with in Haven Hall, so lots of, in fact, Someone said last week, they called in and said, man, these are young people, that rebellious day that she talked about, the guy smoking pot. Uh, sometimes that rebellion is I'm going to go and have all kinds of wild sex. You know, my parents are prudes. I'm going to go buck wild in school, you know. And they, she's already described this kinky sex, as they call it. That's in the word, guy, kinky. 
Uh, but all this, you know, exotic sex that was going on and all the rest of it, like, they said maybe she went and had some really rough sex, had some regrets about it, felt some type of way afterwards, and then concocted this story, and there we go. You, you, I, some I folks suggested that last week and said, hey, maybe that's what's happening here. For, I grew up in a white community, predominantly white community, so I've had quite a few interactions just in conversing with white females. And one of the things that quite a few of the white females laid out to me when they were younger is in their rebellious stage, it's pretty much two options, right? You're either going to become a lesbian to rebel against your parents or you're going to become a, a white girl who has uh, gutter sex with black guys. Now, to what extent that goes, whether that means they're dating them or just slum sexing it with them, that's their ideal of rebelling against their parents. You get what I'm saying? Which is interesting because that kind of ties into uh, uh, with your workplace racism show last Friday where the white girl walked up to the other white girl and, and talked about, bitch, why you get married? Well, the rebellious stage either goes lesbian way or get a black guy. Caller at the courthouse in Florida. That was his anecdote, the tackiness down in the uh, Sunshine State. Maybe we'll get an update on that one tomorrow. Uh, yet, good comparison or a good pattern uh, in terms of the white behavior. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, comments that they want to make sure they get in. Yes, can I be here? Non Clemson grad, perhaps Miss C. Uh, yep. Um, hello, all. Hope everyone's having a good uh, evening. Um, I'll start with the uh, eat only white colored food. When um, when, my wife, when my wife and I heard that line, we tried to come up with as many white foods as possible. And by the time we were done, we came to the conclusion: um, How in the heck can you survive, yet alone be healthy with that type of diet? Uh, white rice, cauliflower. <laughs> my wife said mayonnaise. Um, the potatoes maybe, um, if she can get past uh, the purple skin of eggplant, maybe the inside of an eggplant, uh, yogurt, but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's see. There was one person she identified, can drink three cups of tea from one tea bag. Uh, and and then she also marked that her father was in jail. Now, I remember you, um, while commenting earlier, you said something along the lines of she only takes time to um, identify um, the non-white character um, characters in her book. Now I do wonder because um, I was half listening when I heard about this Ken person whether or not he was a black person only because she said something about his father being in jail. Um, and then um, and this is from like the first week when we, when when this book started. Um, I didn't say it at the time, but um, a couple years ago there was a white man who raped a white woman. His name was Tom Stranger, and her name was Thordis Elba. And though this rape occurred after it, the white woman decided to forgive him, and they went on a speaking tour about the interaction. And I just couldn't for the life of me think of any other situation where after committing such an act, clearly a crime, that the person who committed the crime, I'm not even sure if this person, Tom Stranger, served any um, prison time, maybe probation, but also they could stand and be in the same place with each other and get to go on a speaking tour. And people still not look at this man like he's not a – still look at this man like he's human. But that's, that's interesting. 
um, compared to someone like uh, Mr. Um, Broadwater, who basically, even after being proven um, innocent, uh, people probably still don't look at him like he's a human being. Um, let's see. Um, the school poem, the one that she wrote about the whole situation and how she talked about um, how she wanted to rape her rapist with a knife. Now that you know, if, you know, if, you, um, if someone gets, gets traumatized, raped, or whatever, um, whatever situation that, that befalls them, um, I can understand wanting um, to get you know revenge, you know, not be forgiven and stuff like that. Um, but what I find interesting is that you know, obviously, at least black people, when they go through these types of traumas, whether it be uh, rape or homicide, whatever you could come up with. Are black people ever given the opportunity to speak about um, what they would do if given the opportunity to get revenge? The most it ever amounts to is, well, shoot, well, do you forgive the person who wronged you, especially if it's a white person? Um, and then, of course, when she went back to the school campus, um, you know, she got to go into the girl girls only dorm, and of course, she got um. I, what about to private security to escort her around campus? You know, I have a friend. One of the things he constantly tells me is that, you know, the amount of rape that happens to campus on, on, on college campuses to females is an extraordinary number, and colleges themselves are not very good at dealing with it. Now, I don't agree with all of his statements. Um, I do agree that, of course, yeah, rape does happen on college campuses, um, and that's unfortunate. But um, much like this book and what we've learned about Ms. Siebold, you know, of course, in hindsight, how often are these cases really raping um, versus, you know, when someone just has sex, they regret it the next day, and then someone catches a, um, a, a court case. And with that, I'll meet my line. Much obliged, non-Clemson grad. Uh, again, the Rolling Stone reports lots of examples uh, of what happens. And again, even the Rolling Stone reports, they didn't really have a Gregory Madison. When they talk about the epidemics of rape, it's generally much more uh, like Brock Turner, not Anthony Broadwater. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Other folks uh, who have a hand up. That we missed. Uh, if you have commentary, okay, we got everybody. Let's see. Uh, trying to think, email or the rest of my notes. I'll see if I can do both. Let's see. I'll read one email. Uh, third email. Greetings. Uh, she idolized an actress and described her ordeal as a performance. The characteristics that she admires about this actress is that she is less talented but steals the show with her antics. Oh, that's from last week. That's right. She described her sister as perfect and described herself as loud, weird, and obsolete, a super freak. She described her mother as a daughter of the South. This means something to them, for sure. She talked about crackers and cocks to her father, and this meant the kid that they knew was still there. 
on the way to the college for a job was to be on the alert for an attack? Question. They listened for menace in greetings? Question. She knew a girl was gang raped and terrorized, but the white people she saw were still beautiful at Penn College. That's because they were white. The black people were animals. Remember from last week, just on the way to getting uh, to UPenn, they were animals. Uh, Myra and Ed, the pastor's son, the clerk, their town was full of vicious crime, but it was minimized. The Catholic Church was a huge part of this town, and obviously the pastor wasn't raising his sons. What was he doing? Question. I mean, that would even be interesting, too. Like, man, let's look at the uh, Catholic Church reports, what have you, to see if this church is one of those that, oh, we have uh, had some sexual abuse allegations here and had to move father, you know, such and such here and moved away and pay out some settlements. Like, I will do that before we wrap this up just to see, is this one of those churches that's also had some problems, allegations? Uh, let's see. <laughs> I agree. Craving sexual attention after getting raped seems rather odd to me as well. We talked about that last week. I said that she's talking about wanting, you know, guys come over and to be hanging out with her and not her sister and all that. And I was saying, man, that seems to be odd. Like, I would be, you know, leave me alone. Whatever, I'm not a female. Uh, I wonder how many times fingering or fingers is in this text. She likes that term. I can check and see. Uh, in Lucky, her family is dysfunctional. In Lovely Bones, the family is dysfunctional. <laughs> I said that for people, if you have uh, time, either if you're a reader, right, you can read Lovely Bones, or you can just watch the movie. It's not quite the same, but, I mean, just for, like, parallels in the storyline and all the rest of it. And if you watch the movie, Mark Wahlberg is in it. Like, talk about terrorists, but whatever. Uh, and just see, because they're both uh, about white women who have been raped, raped and killed in the case of the movie, but either or, uh, just to see parallels, because that is a work of fiction, like no doubt about it as opposed to what we're reading here, memoir, so we're told. Uh, in, in Lucky, her dad is not overly concerned, even doubtful about her rape story. In Lovely Bones, the dad is obsessed with solving the crime of his daughter, Mark Wahlberg's character. I think the author craves male attention that she didn't receive from her father. Her rape story did not get the reaction from her father that she wanted. The dad in Lovely Bones is, in my opinion, the reaction she wanted from her dad in response to her rape story. Hmm. I think the disbelief in the ninth story from her father is because he assumed that he instilled his hatred for black people in her to where he expected her to fight for the death to preserve their white innocence, virginity. Hmm, very interesting. I will have to think about that. Mark Wahlberg is the father in Lovely Bones, um, and he's, you know, 
just obsessed and irate about all of this and is stalking people and all the rest of it, trying to find his killer, uh, like start very, very different from her dad's behavior in the book uh, that we're reading. Something to, yeah, ponder if you see both of the films. Uh, I'll look at, I guess before we get to audio segment two, I said I'll look at some of my notes. The word oozing was in Woody Allen's book. Uh, He was using it as an adjective saying black people were oozing talent. And I said, that's not normally a word people use in a flattering manner. She said oozing here, and it was not flattering. Um, Let's see. She said she was oozing. She was sorry for me and thrilled talking about all these people. Like, oh, the poor rape girl. Oh, Uh, let's see. She gets so, she's so into the physical appearance of these white girls. Uh, I don't think if she was around non-white females, they would be described in such detail. And especially uh, her, some of the listeners even sense like she has some sort of sexual attraction uh, to some of these different white women. Uh, I just think that's so consistent where black people are not described in those terms. Uh, they're not beautiful. Even if uh, they are, it's somehow threatening, Right. Uh, and it's it's a totally different level of humanization uh, to be able to talk about all their characteristics and hair and facial features and all these descriptors and uh, and then on top of that to be uh, complimentary and oh, of course it's beautiful especially for the white female characters uh, she said and then she gets upset one of the females who comes to comment is homely she says. This homely girl comes to talk to me. It's almost like she's doubly offended, like, no count, unattractive white woman coming in, pitying me. Uh, Let's see. Oh, yeah, the poem, she was. I guess it would be the last thing I'd say before I get. All of the details, you already noted she wanted to fuck him with knives, excuse the language, but this white woman, um, she, if they found you, I, not they, I could take those solid red balls and slice them separately off as everyone watched. They were going to make this a movie. Is the poem, was that going to be in the movie? Unless I'm misreading, this is castration, right? Slicing off balls, that's what she's talking about. These solid red balls and slice them separately off, that's what she's talking about, right? Unless it's a different set of red balls, something I missed in the book. This is going to be in the movie? Fucking with knives? Shoot him in the kneecap? I paused on two accounts. I said, number one, everything that she talked about, this has been done. Guaranteed. You go read without sanctuary, like not one time, not three times, not four times, like everything she described has been done. Probably was staple, especially for a crime like this, which is two, I paused. Had this crime happened, I'll say 1951, that's before Emmett Till was castrated, uh, 1941, 
1931, this poem could have been carried out. Dare I say, even in upstate New York. I don't even think a black person would be allowed to write and publish something like this in response to a white person raping them or doing anything to them. It would be all about forgiveness and all the rest. It would not be. Think about what you would do to a white person who has wronged you and whatever violent fantasies you can come up with. And then we're going to read this in a workshop and class and force everyone to, to comment on it i.e. complimented, generally in those sort of workshops and things. You can't say, oh, this is crap. I hate this. This is the worst poem I've ever heard in my life. Like, you sound like a psychopath. Like, you can't say that sort of thing generally. It's got to be, oh, this was great. That's what you, oh, this is so, so much courage. Uh, You're so brave. I appreciate it. She even included, I guess a couple of folks said, man, I think this is really aggressive. And, in fact, violent would have been a better word. And you making us comment. You're not even going to allow us to say, oh, I don't have anything to say. No. She says, again, the Latina girl, non-white, I, I suspect, doesn't want to comment on all this. Like, what am I to say? You can't pass. You've got to comment. Aggressive. going to make you talk. Talk about race. I'm going to make you. I don't, wanna, I, don't, I don't have anything. Oh, you've got to talk. You've got to say something. This is a gift he has given you. What kind of gift? You're talking about sodomizing a male with a knife? castrating him, and this is a gift? We'll get to audio segment two where we got the identification with the shady white man. Uh, all of that, uh, the, the knifing and killing and shooting, and then I'm going to read this as some sort of performance piece. Uh, for Again, I'm still sitting there. Was this going to be in the movie? She's going to read this in the movie? Has Anthony Broadwater read this? <laughs> Man. System of white supremacy racism. Uh, a gift from Alice Siebold. We didn't get through all of the emails. We'll do the last one uh, once we finish with the next audio segment. We finished. She's about to ID Gregory Madison, i.e. Anthony Broadwater. If you did not get the comment or you have additional thoughts, make a note. We will hear you once we finish up. Alice Siebold, the white woman, continues. Lucky. Context of white supremacy. I did. I crossed the street and walked the rest of the way to the mom-and-pop store. I did not look back. I crossed the street again to walk directly into the store. Time slowed down here. I remember things in the way one rarely does. I knew I had to go back outside, and I tried to calm myself. Inside the store, I chose a peach yogurt and a team soda, two items, if you knew me, that testified to my faltering composure. When the Palestinian man rang them up, he was brusque and hurried. There was no good day. I left the store, crossed directly back to the safety of the other side of the street, and shot a quick glance over to the alleyway. Both men were gone. 
I also noticed a policeman to my right, on my side of the street. He was getting out of his patrol car. He was very tall, over six feet, and had bright carrot-orange hair and a mustache. He seemed in no hurry. I assessed my surroundings and decided I was okay. It had been just a more intense version of the fear I had felt around certain black men ever since the rape. I checked my watch and quickened my step. I did not want to be late for Wolf's workshop. Then, as if out of nowhere, I saw my rapist crossing toward me. He walked diagonally across the street from the other side. I did not stop walking or scream. He was smiling as he approached. He recognized me. It was a stroll in the park to him. He had met an acquaintance on the street. I knew him, but I could not make myself speak. I needed all my energy to focus on believing I was not under his control again. Hey, girl, he said. Don't I know you from somewhere? He smirked at me, remembering. I did not respond. I looked directly at him, knew his face had been the face over me in the tunnel, knew I had kissed those lips, stared into those eyes, smelled the crushed berry smell on his skin. I was too afraid to yell out. There was a cop behind me, but I could not scream, That's the man who raped me! That happens in movies. I put one foot in front of the other. I heard him laughing behind me, but I was still walking. He had no fear. It had been nearly six months since we'd seen each other last. Six months since I lay under him in a tunnel on top of a bed of broken glass. He was laughing because he had gotten away with it, because he had raped before me and because he would rape again. My devastation was a pleasure for him. He was walking the streets, scot-free. I turned the corner at the end of the block. Over my shoulder, I saw him walking up to the red-headed policeman. He was shooting the breeze, so sure of his safety that he felt comfortable enough, right after seeing me, to tease a cop. I never questioned why I went to tell Wolf I couldn't attend his class. It was my duty. I was his student. I was the only sophomore in the class. I walked to the Hall of Languages at the top of the hill and checked my watch. I had time before Wolf's class to make two phone calls from the phone booth on the bottom floor. I called Ken Childs, told him what had happened, asked him to meet me at the library nearby in half an hour. I wanted to make a sketch of the rapist, and Ken was in art school. Then, as soon as I hung up the phone, I called my parents collect. They both got on the phone. Mom and Dad, I said, I'm calling from the Hall of Languages. My mother was attuned now to any waver in my voice. What is it, Alice? she asked. I just saw him, Mom, I said. Saw who? my father asked. As always, two beats back. The rapist. I don't remember their reaction. I couldn't. I was calling because I needed them to know. But once I told them, I did not wait. I rushed at them with facts. I'm going to tell Professor Wolf I can't come to class. I've called Ken Childs. He's meeting me to walk me home. I want to make a sketch. Call us when you get there, my mother said. I remember that. Have you called the police? my father asked. I did not hesitate. Not yet, 
I said, which meant to all of us that it was not a yes or no question. I would call them. I would pursue this. I went up the stairs to where my workshop was held and ran into Wolf as he was about to enter the English office. The other students were filtering inside. I approached him. Professor Wolf, I said, can I talk to you? It's class time. We'll talk after. I can't make it to class. That's what it's about. I knew he would not be happy. I did not know how not happy he would be. He proceeded to tell me how lucky I was to be in the class, and that missing this one class was equivalent to missing three classes of a regular undergraduate course. All this I knew. All this had been why I walked blindly up to Humanities Hall instead of returning directly to my dorm. I begged Wolf to give me just two minutes of his time, to talk to me in his office, not the hall. Please, I said. Something in the way I said it called to that place inside him beyond the formal rules of the classroom, which I knew he valued. Please, I said, and he responded. Still, it was a concession with, it will have to be brief. I followed him down the short hall, turned the corner after him, and stood there while he unlocked the door. Looking back, I can't believe how calm I remained from the moment I saw my rapist on the street to that moment inside Wolf's office with the door closed. Now I was with a man I knew would not hurt me. For the first time, I thought it was safe to exhale. He sat facing me while I hovered over and then sat in the student chair. I burst. I can't come to class. I just saw the man who raped me. I have to call the police. I remember his face, and I remember it vividly. He was a father. I knew this vaguely at the time. He had little boys. He came near me. He wanted to comfort, but then instinctually he pulled back. I was a rape victim. How would I interpret his touch? His face fell into the recesses reserved for the pure confusion one expresses when there is nothing on this earth that he or she can do to make something better. He asked if he could make a call, if I had a way home, what, if anything, he could do. I told him I had called a friend who would meet me at the library and walk me home where I would phone the police. Wolf walked me back out into the hall. Before he let me go, my mind already working on putting one foot in front of the other, thinking of the phone call to the police, repeating over and over again in my head, maroon windbreaker, blue jeans rolled at cuffs, converse all-star sneakers, Wolf stopped me and put both hands on my shoulders. He looked at me, and when it was clear to him that for that second he held my attention, he spoke. Alice, he said, a lot of things are going to happen, and this may not make much sense to you right now, but listen. Try, if you can, to remember everything. I have to restrain myself from capitalizing the last two words. Remember everything. He meant them to be capitalized. He meant them to resound and to meet me sometime in the future on whatever path I chose. He had known me for two weeks. I was 19. I sat in his class and drew flowers on my jeans. I'd written a story about sewing dummies that came to life and sought revenge on dressmakers. 
so it was a shout across a great distance. He knew, as I was later to discover when I walked into Doubleday on Fifth Avenue in New York and bought This Boy's Life, Wolf's own story, that memory could save, that it had power, that it was often the only recourse of the powerless, the oppressed, or the brutalized. The walk to the library, only 200 yards across the front of the quad and on the other side of the street, fronting the Hall of Languages, was a walk I made on automatic. I became a machine. I think it must be the way men patrol during wartime, completely attuned to movement or threat. The quad is not the quad, but a battlefield where the enemy is alive and hiding. He waits to attack the moment you let your guard down. The answer? Never let it down, not even for a second. With every nerve ending pushing out against the edges of my skin, I reached Bird Library. Although I was still wary, I allowed myself to exhale here. I walked through the fluorescent light. It being still early in the semester, the library was not busy. The few people I passed, I did not look at. I didn't want to meet anyone's eyes. I could not wait for Ken. I was too afraid to stop. I kept walking. Bird was constructed so that by walking through the building, I could exit on the other side of the block, no man's land. It was a street populated by old wood frame houses, many of them used by fraternities and sororities, but it was no longer the sanctified quad. The street lights were fewer here, and in the time it had taken me to walk from Marshall Street to tell Wolf I couldn't come to class, it had grown dark. I had only one goal, to get back to my dorm without injury and to write down everything he'd worn, to detail the features of his face. I got there. I don't remember seeing anyone. If I did, I brushed by them without comment. Inside my small single, I called the police. I explained my situation. I had been raped in May, I said. I was now back on campus and had seen my assailant. Would they come? Then I sat down on my bed and made a sketch. I had written out details. I started with his hair, went next to height, build, nose, eyes, mouth. Then there were comments on his face structure. Short neck, small but dense head, boxy jawline, hair slightly down in front, and his skin, pretty dark but not black-black. At the bottom of the sheet, in the left-hand corner, I did a sketch of him, and beside this noted his clothing. Maroon jacket, windbreaker style, but with down, jeans, blue, white sneakers. Then Ken showed up. He was out of breath and nervous. He was a small, fragile man. The year before, I had romantically compared him to a pint-sized David. So far, he had not shown much ability to handle my situation. Over the summer, he had written once. He explained, and at the time I accepted it, that he had reinvented what had happened to me so it wouldn't hurt him as much. I have decided it is like a broken leg, and like a broken leg, it will heal. Ken tried to improve on my sketch, but he was too nervous. His hands shook. He sat on my bed and looked very small to me, frightened. I decided he was a warm body who knew me, who meant well. That had to be enough. He made several attempts to draw the head of the rapist. 
There were sounds in the hall, walkie-talkies tuned to a self-important pitch, the sound of heavy footsteps. Fists thumped against the door, and I answered them as girls came out into the hall. Syracuse University security. They had been alerted by the police. They were amped. This was the real shit. Two of them were quite wide, and in my tiny studio, their size was accentuated. Within seconds, the Syracuse City Police arrived, three of them. Someone shut the door. I relayed my story again, and there was a slight squabble about jurisdiction. The SU security seemed personally disappointed that since the original incident had happened in Thorndon Park and the sighting was on Marshall Street, it was clearly a city of Syracuse matter and not a campus one. On a professional level, this reflected well on them, but they were not as much university representatives that night as they were hunters with a fresh scent. The police looked at my sketches and at Ken's. They repeatedly referred to Ken as my boyfriend, though I corrected them each time. They eyed him suspiciously. In his slight physique and nervousness, he stood out as a freak in a room populated by large men armed with guns and billy clubs. How long ago did you see the suspect? I told them. They decided there was still some chance, since I hadn't acknowledged him, that the rapist would be loitering in the area of Marshall Street. It was worth a ride in a squad car. Two of the city police took my sketch, leaving Ken's behind. We'll make copies of this and send out an APB. Every man in the city will keep this in his car until we find him, one said. As we ready to leave, Ken asked, Do you need me to come? The looks from the police must have burned into him. He came. With six men in uniform escorting us, we left the building. Ken and I got in the back of a squad car with one officer in the front. I don't remember this man's name, but I remember his anger. We're going to get this puke, he said. Rape is one of the worst crimes. He'll pay. He started the engine and turned on the red and blue flashing lights of his squad car. We roared down to Marshall Street, only a few blocks away. Look carefully, the officer said. He maneuvered his squad car with a manhandling agility I would later recognize in New York cabbies. Ken was slumping down in the seat beside me. He said the flashing lights hurt his head. He shielded his eyes. I looked out. While we drove up and around Marshall Street a few times, the officer told me about his 17-year-old niece, just an innocent girl. She had been gang-raped. Ruined, he said. Ruined. He had his billy club out. He started smacking the empty seat with it. Ken winced each time it hit the vinyl. Having thought this mission was probably futile from the start, I began to be afraid of what this policeman might do. I saw no rapist. I said this. I suggested leaving, looking at mugshots down at the station. But this officer wanted release, and he was going to get it. He braked hard on the final pass down Marshall Street. There, there, he said. What about those three? I looked and knew immediately. Three black students. You could tell by the way they were dressed. They were also tall, too tall to be my rapist. No, I said, let's just go. They're troublemakers, he said. You stay here. 
He got out of the squad car in a hurry and chased after them. He had his billy club in his hand. Ken began to suffer some version of the panic I was familiar with from my mother. His breathing was labored. He wanted to get out. What's he going to do, he said. He tried the door. It had been locked automatically. This was where criminals, as well as victims, rode. I don't know. Those guys aren't even close. The lights were still flashing overhead. People began to come up to the car to stare in. I was mad at this policeman for leaving us there. I was mad at Ken for being a wimp. I knew no good would come of an angry man speeding on adrenaline, looking for revenge for his raped niece. I was in the center of it all, and simultaneously I realized I didn't exist. I was just a catalyst that made people nervous, guilty, or furious. I was frightened, but more than anything, I was disgusted. I wanted the policeman to come back, and I sat in the car with Ken whimpering beside me, put my head between my knees so the people on the outside of the car looking in would be met with the back of the victim, and I listened for the sounds I knew were taking place in the alley. Someone was being beaten. I knew that as surely as I knew anything. It was not him. The officer returned. He swooped into the driver's side and laid his billy club firmly against the palm of his hand. That'll teach him, he said. He was sweating, exhilarated. What did they do, Ken ventured. He was horrified. Open container. Never talk back to an officer. I did not overlook what happened on Marshall Street that night. Everything was wrong. It was wrong that I couldn't walk through a park at night. It was wrong that I was raped. It was wrong that my rapist assumed he was untouchable, or that as a Syracuse co-ed, I was most certainly treated better by the police. It was wrong that the niece of that officer was raped. It was wrong of him to call her ruined. It was wrong to put the lights on and strut that car down Marshall. It was wrong to hassle and perhaps physically hurt three innocent young black men on the street. There is no but. There is only this. That officer lived on my planet. I fit into his world in the way I never again would fit into Ken's. I can't remember whether Ken asked to be dropped at home or whether he came with me to the station. Whatever the case, I shut him off after the search on Marshall Street. We reached the public safety building. It was now after eight. I had not been back to the station since the night of the attack, but that night the police station felt safe to me. I loved the way the elevators let out onto a waiting area, at the end of which was a huge door that locked automatically behind us. Through the bulletproof glass you could see out into the lobby, but no one could get at you. The officer led me in, and I heard the smooth hydraulic hush and firm click of the door behind us. To our left was the dispatcher sitting at the command center. There were three or four uniformed men standing nearby. Some held coffee mugs. When we entered, they quieted down and stared at the ground. There were only two kinds of civilians, victims and criminals. My officer explained to the man at the front desk that I was the rape case out of the East Zone. I was there to look at mugshots. He set me up in a small file room across from the dispatcher. 
He left the door open and began to pull large black binders off the surrounding shelves. There were at least five such binders, and each was filled with small, wallet-sized mugshots. These five books were of black males only, and only those near the age that I thought my rapist would be. The room seemed more a storage area for these books than a place for victims to sit and pour over the photos. The only surface was an old metal typing table, and I had difficulty balancing the books in my lap and on the rickety table, whose flyleaf kept collapsing under the weight. But I was a good student when I needed to be, and I studied those books page by page. I saw six photos that reminded me of my rapist, but I was beginning to believe the process of mugshots would turn out to be fruitless. One of the officers brought me some weak but still hot coffee. It was an island of comfort in an otherwise alien environment. How you doing? See anything? he asked. No, I said. They all just blur together. I don't think he's here. Keep trying. He's fresh in your mind. I was coming to the end of book four when the call came in. P.O.P. Clapper just called in, the dispatcher called over to my officer. He knows your man. The officer left me in the room and went out to the front desk. The uniforms who'd been waiting for assignment surrounded him. I listened to the Abbott and Costello-like routine that followed. Says it's Madison, the dispatcher said. Which Madison, asked my officer. Mark? No, said another. He's up on a charge already. Frank? No. Hamphy tagged him last week. It must be Greg. I thought he was already in. And so it went. I remember one of the men said something about pitying old man Madison, how it was hard raising sons alone. Then my officer returned. I've got some questions to ask you, he said. Are you ready? Yes. Describe again that policeman you saw. I did. And where did you see his car? I said he'd parked in the Huntington Hall lot. Bingo, he said. It looks like we may have our man. He left again, and I closed the mug book lying open on the typing table. All of a sudden, I didn't know what to do with my hands. They were shaking. I placed them under my legs and sat on them. I started to cry. A few minutes later, I heard the dispatcher say, Here he is! And those inside the locked door cheered. I stood up and frantically searched the room for a place to hide. I chose the corner that shared the wall with the door. My face was pressed up against the metal shelving that held the mug books for years past. Great work, Clapper, someone said, and the air rushed out of me. Could it just be the officer, without my rapist in tow? We'll get a statement from the victim and then make out the warrant for an arrest, someone said. Yes, I was safe but I still didn't know what to do. I wasn't able to join them. I was a victim, not really a person. I sat back down in the typing chair. The men outside were happy, slapping backs and teasing Officer Clapper for his red hair. He was a beanpole, a carrot top, and young stuff. He ducked his head in the room. Hi, Alice, he said. Remember me? I smiled ear to ear. Yes, I do. The men outside roared. Remember you? How could she forget you? You're the next best thing to Santa Claus. Things settled down. A call came in. Two of the men left to respond. Officer Clapper had to go write up a report. 
My officer brought me back into the room where I had met Sergeant Lorenz three days short of exactly six months before. He took my affidavit, quoting heavily from the detailed description I had written down. Are you ready for this? The officer asked me at the end of the affidavit. We'll arrest. You have to be willing to testify. I am, I said. I was driven back to Haven Hall in an unmarked car. I called my parents and told them I was fine. The officer filed his final report on case F-362 before it was transferred back to Sergeant Lorenz. Rape first, sodomy first, robbery first. While I was still in the CID office with the victim, the general message was broadcast, and immediately upon the broadcast there was a response from car 561, P.O.P. Clapper, who stated that he had spoken to a person who fit the rape suspect's description at approximately 1827 hours on Marshall Street. He informed me that the person whom he had spoken to was one Gregory Madison. Madison has a record and has done time in prison. A photo lineup was to be conducted in CID office by P.O.P. Clapper, but there was no negative. It is almost certain that the suspect in question is Gregory Madison. An affidavit was taken from the victim and P.O.P. Clapper. Arrest is imminent. Description broadcast to both third and first shift coming on. If located, observe and ask for assistance. Suspect considered armed and dangerous. That night, I had a dream. Al Tripodi was in it. In a prison cell, he and two other men held my rapist down. I began to perform acts of revenge on the rapist, but to no avail. He rested loose from Tripodi's grasp and came at me. I saw his eyes as I had seen them in the tunnel, close up. I woke screaming and held myself upright in my damp sheets. I looked at the phone. It was 3 a.m. I couldn't call my mother. I tried to sleep again. I had found him. Again, it would be just the two of us. I thought of the last line in the poem I had turned in to Gallagher. Come die and lie beside me. I had issued an invitation in my mind, the rapist had murdered me on the day of the rape. Now I was going to murder him back, make my hate large and whole. In the first month at school, I had kept largely to myself, focusing intently on my two writing workshops. I called Mary Alice the day after seeing the rapist on the street and told her about it. She was thrilled but frightened for me. She was also busy. She, Tree, and Diane were rushing sororities. She had her sights set on Alpha Chi Omega. It was a sorority for good girls who were both athletic and academic. It was all white. Mary Alice was a shoe-in. Her pursuit of such things, despite the running cynical commentary she provided on the rituals and idiocies of the rush process, divided us. I did not spend day-to-day -day time with her. Tentatively, I made one new friendship. Her name was Lila, and she came from Massachusetts by way of Georgia. But unlike my mother, who approved of all things Southern, Lila had no accent. They had drummed it out of her, she said, when she enrolled in high school in Massachusetts. To my ear, she'd done a fine job. My mother swore any Southerner would know better, 
could pick up the slight lilt and drawl in her words. She lived on my hall at Haven, six doors down. She was blonde, and we both wore glasses. We were the same size, that is to say, slightly overweight. She considered herself a grind, a social retard. I saw it as my duty to draw her out. I could sense she had a zany side. Lila was also, as Mary Alice still was, a virgin. Lila was a perfect audience of one. Unlike my pairing with Mary Alice, I was not the oddball sidekick of the popular girl. I was the slightly thinner one, the louder one, the braver one. One night I told her she needed to find her inner animal and said, Watch me! I took a box of raisins and stabbed it with a knife, grimacing and mugging for the camera she held. I made her switch places and stabbed the raisins. In the pictures from that day, I mean it. I'm after those raisins. Lila couldn't quite get into the role I'd made for her. Her blade is poised delicately over the already perforated box. Her eyes are sweet, and her face a schoolgirl, trying her best to appear passionately dismayed. We specialized in getting the giggles. I anticipated her scheduled study breaks and tried to cajole her into making them longer, making them arc over a whole evening in my room, where, in laughing with her, I wouldn't have to think about anything outside. On October 14th, I was on campus. Downtown, Investigator Lorenz called Assistant District Attorney Gail Eubelair, who had been assigned to review the case prior to presentation to the judge for warrants. ADA Eubelair wasn't in. Investigator Lorenz left a message. Gregory Madison was arrested at 2 p.m. I made the papers for the second time. Victim points finger was the headline for the small five-paragraph item in the Syracuse Post-Standard of October 15th. Tricia from the Rape Crisis Center mailed this to me, as she would all subsequent articles. A preliminary hearing was scheduled for October 19th at Syracuse City Court. The defendant was Gregory Madison, the plaintiff, the people of the state of New York. It was a hearing held to determine if there was enough evidence in the case to support a grand jury. I was told that witnesses being called might range from the medical doctors who had completed the serology report the night of my rape to Officer Clapper, who had seen Madison on the street. I would testify. So might Madison. Context of white supremacy. So that'll do us. This audio section, we will pick up next week, very early in Chapter 8, Gregory Madison in custody. Uh, continuing with the emails, in fact, in between audio segments, uh, Dread138 mailed Gus T the questions, PDF form uh, for the books. I guess if folks uh, would like to check those out, we'll share. I'll share two of the questions and topics for discussion. So number... <laughs> Number five, what role does race play in Alice's story? How might the rape and its aftermath have been different for Alice, her family, and her friends 
if the rapist had not been black. Now, that is definitely one to think about. Because there are lots of white criminals and rapists mentioned in this book. They do not get the same treatment as Gregory Madison, Anthony Broadwater. Might not have had a book if this had been a white person. In fact, this isn't a book. I don't think you have that poem. I don't think he's doing all that. I'm going to rape you with knives and dreaming about killing you and all that. If this is a white person, her dad is not stomping around. These animals out on the street. Oh, my God. I think someone said that last week, like she didn't have a generalized sensitivity about males. It was just black males. There's a whole lot of it. Like I said, there's no books if she's not raped by a black male. Maybe we need to read more. The other question I'll share for now or topic for discussion, if members of your reading group have also read The Lovely Bones, try to identify elements of Alice Feebold's own story that resonate in her fiction. Hmm. Attention from father, that was one, I think one of our listeners pointed out from before. That is an interesting work in and of itself. Like I said, you have to pay attention to how racism, white supremacy uh, is mentioned uh, within the context of that book. But anywho, uh, I think our last email, double check to make sure, but I think our last email for today, untiljustice at gmail.com, if you have commentary. Uh, Greetings, Gus. Chapter 6. Number 1, slowly the stories came out who was and wasn't a virgin. I wonder if this type of confessional occurs with young black women or if this is primarily a white girl thing. I think lots of guys and girls uh, talk about sex and birds and the bees and all of that. All of this virgin talk thing? Hmm. Seems like white culture, that white purity, white innocence rhetoric. Number two, she was stoned and screaming on the bed where she remained chained up. The casual description of such sexual debauchery throughout the chapter gives me the impression that there is nothing unusual or disturbing about it as far as the author is concerned. I agree totally. It's so normalized. Like I said, this would have been a better book an old make-believe rapist, Anthony Broadwater. Let's see. Three, honestly, when I look back, I can say I was in love with Mary Alice. Is she insinuating that her love was sexual in nature? Question. That thought, that is the thought that entered my mind. See, that's what I said before. We had the caller who was talking about what she was talking about, the different white woman. She said she had uh, the curly hair, tanned, athletic. He said it seemed kind of anti-sexual. See, that's at least myself or the person who wrote in. See, lots of debauchery mentioned anyway. Chapter 7, number 1. Oh, Alice, she said, you've come back. The whole scenario regarding the other students in her new dormitory 
strikes me as another case of feigned empathy. It seems suspected racists are masters of this behavior. Number two, let's talk about this poem you've given me, Alice. I find a lot of poetry is overrated. I admit it may be due to the fact that much of it I don't understand. I am no fan of poetry myself, so I feel you on that. Number three, then out of nowhere, I saw my rapist crossing towards me. This reads like there should be some dramatic music in the background, like Jaws or I don't know. Uh, Number four, I had written out details, skin pretty dark, but not black black. What is the difference between pretty dark and black black? The statement struck me as odd and how. Uh, Number five, three black students. He got out of the squad car in a hurry and chased after them. He had his billy club in his hand. Someone was being beaten. Race soldiers can't resist an opportunity to use their nigger knocker. Number six, I was beginning to believe the process of mugshots would turn out to be fruitless. They all just blur together. I don't think he is here. No mugshot, a vague description, broken glasses, random beatings of black suspects by race soldiers. Doesn't seem like the movie director had to be Sherlock Holmes to be a little suspicious of the story. Woo! Chapter 8, number 1. It was a sorority for good girls. It was all white. Of course, it was all white. They are the only good girls. In a system of racism, white supremacy. Someone asked about that phrase last week. Good girls. It was good girls and nice guys. That was it. How many times is good girl? I think it was over a dozen. And the good girls are always white. Uh, Number two, mother who approved of all things Southern. Does that include lynching, bombing, enslaving, and just generally terrorizing non-white people? I'm going to add castrating since she was talking about slicing balls off uh, earlier in the poem. Uh, Let's see. I made the papers. Victim points finger. There's that word again. This is misleading since she had not actually identified the defendant. Eve, it's true. I was thinking the same thing. Like, man, she didn't, uh, she didn't pick out anybody, I thought. Like, we haven't heard any sort of identification. I'm waiting for that because that's like hinge. They said that was part of how Mr. Broadwater was exonerated, the nonsense that she talks about the identification here. So, I don't even know how they got that either. Like, man, how much uh, deception is uh, is involved in this here thing? Uh, let's see. And oh, we didn't get that far. We didn't get to all the chapter eight. So I have to pause right there. We'll pick up the rest. Man, oh man! Until justice at gmail dot com. If you have commentary, you can write. We'll share. The number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code 564-943-POUND. Star 61, if you have commentary. Uh, folks who are with us, if you have thoughts, 
proceed. Maybe heard? Trade 138, trade 138. Yes, sir. Yes, yes. I just wanted to um, add, add a little bit more. Like I said that um, from the first segment, we talked about the um, – she even brags about the um, older white man she kept the photo of to brag as um, a full relationship and then showing interest in it. So I just, went, I, I just wrote down Woody. <laughs> and then um, I want to contrast Ken to the race soldier as they walked, as they uh, drove around. Is, um, she saw the race soldier regardless of how he mistreated those three um, non-white males and that Ken was crouching and whimpering in the back seat. So she's, she's already got an idea of what the white knight should be for her. And then um, I don't know what he says. It's just becoming more and more um, clear to me that she's, she's acting in a racist manner because she could have at any time reported this, this um, race soldier's misconduct to authorities, but she did not. She instead, um, regardless, if she was locked in the car, but she was. She instead decided not to report that until she wrote her book. Um, she overlooked everything because that officer fit into her planet. And then there was a. I just I just made a random comment. The reckless eyeballing turns into a conviction. I'll leave my line for now. Thank you. The reckless eyeballing, not the reckless eyeballing. Oh, I bet that's mentioned in the book without sanctuary. Much obliged, uh, Dread138. Uh, other folks with a hand up, proceed. folks thinking or anything, nothing else stood out from, I'll get to some of my notes. Uh, don't wait until the last moment if you have thoughts or comments. Uh, I did want to make sure that I got in just with that poem. Dr. Curry, a number of our other uh, white guests, Melissa Stein, she was on the program, talked about how white women have been deliberately erased from the history of lynchings, castrations and white racist violence against black people uh, and how many times they were on the scene for exactly what Alice Diebold described. The castration and all of that. We read some of the very books where they talked about them coming and uh, being given the opportunity. Do you want the knife to act out exactly what Alice Diebold said? Some of that I think might even be in sundown towns. James Lowen died this year. But I just think that's super important. Uh, that's such a, I think we've been conditioned, we've been trained incorrectly to think of white racist violence as exclusively the domain of white men. And I mean, she is dreaming 
about wanting to take violent vengeance on a black male, not watching someone else do that. I think that's so important. It could have been, you know, that I'm seeing these other guys, instead of them just holding him down, they're taking out vengeance. No, 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 no. Give me the knife. Give me the glass. I'm going to do the chopping myself. Let's see. She says, I had a question. Caller in Ohio, yeah. question. Okay, so uh, near the end when she was at the police station, I was a little bit confused and hopefully it could be cleared up, but was she speaking about uh, the, the person who apprehended uh, her so-called rapist? Is this the same officer who jumped out the car and went and uh, beat on the three black males in the alley? I these are two different individuals. Uh, let's see, because it seems like there's a gang of folks. Let's see. She mentions, I think the person who does the apprehension of Gregory Madison uh, is the one that has the carrot top, I think it is. Let's see. Bring on the troll bars over 60 tall carrot top. All right, so that's the guy who comes uh, to take them for the ride. And does do the beating. So is this the same person that they're celebrating later? Let's see. Is this the same guy? Mm-hmm. Actually, look at the sketches. Mm-hmm. Marshall. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not sure if that's – I might have been mistaken. I don't think the – the Carrot Top fellow is different. Let me make sure I got the correct guy. Uh, the Carrot Top officer was the fellow that was driving around. So, no, these are two different people. The Carrot Top fellow is the guy that she saw first when she allegedly first saw her rapist. Like, oh, he's with the shady guy. Officer's right behind me. She could have yelled out and told that officer then, but she didn't. And then later on – the carrot top fella is the one who does uh, get, what you call it, uh, Gregory Madison. Uh, so, no, it is not the same guy. Uh, the person who gets Gregory Madison, I guess, breaks him into the arrest, is not the same officer as the one who beat up these It's kind of interesting to hear how the officer that was driving around for her, supposedly his niece, was gang raped. I find that very interesting that, uh, you know, he would just happen to be a person who has a, you know, so-called similar situation as the uh, female that's in the car with him has. I was curious about that when she talks about the officer who did do the beating, different guy didn't apprehend saying that he was gang raped. Uh, let me make sure I didn't miss any notes on the way to talking about that. Let me see. Let me back up. Uh, well, correction, let me say his niece, he says, is so-called gang raped. So I wonder is that why he 
felt so inclined to just jump out the car because uh, he pretty much targeted those three black males, right? Like they're at the, she said, they're at the end of whatever the street was and he locks the brakes up. And so it's like he was on the hunt for somebody. Uh, similar to, I don't know if you guys remember the story that the actor, a white male, Liam Neeson, uh, so-called said when his white female companions when he was younger cooked up a story about being raped by a black male and Liam Neeson spoke about wanting to walk the streets to get vengeance for his white female friend. Could be uh, in terms of the uh, going out for vengeance. Um, lots. It doesn't seem to take a lot of mo- or reasoning to get riled up to go after black people. So any reason will do. I remember what happened to my niece or I'm mad about what they did to Alice or I'm mad we didn't get Carmelo Anthony on the team or whatever. Um, Any motivating factor will do with the Negras. Let's see. I highlighted that section. I want to make sure I didn't miss any of the details there. Uh, Let's see. We did get a yogurt mention. I think when the folks who were talking about all the white foods that she ate, uh, she gets yogurt to calm herself and teen soda. I don't even know what that is. After allegedly seeing this rapist, uh, he seemed in no hurry. I assessed my surroundings, decided I was okay. It had been just a more intense version of the fear I had felt around certain black men ever since the rape. Now, she has described white people, white men, who have stabbed elderly women, robbed elderly women, do drugs, alcohol, like all kinds of rape women, all kinds of crimes. Jeffrey Epstein's (laughs) doing bondage and what have you with these young college girls. And she's only in a moment of trepidation and anxiety around certain black males. And I don't even like the details, like which particular types of black males do you have this anxiety around? And apparently your father has it too. Calling them animals and all the rest of them, just random black people outside. The description Let's of the see. county that he gave Nick. was very interesting too, though. Like he, That sounds like a scary type of guy. He's a townie dating some young college female. It sounds like a predator, but she sounded like she wasn't scared of the guy at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Let's see. see. I didn't know what to make of her saying when she was with, I guess, the officers when they took her back to go look through the mugshots or what have you. She says, now I was with a man I knew would not hurt me. I thought she had been with her dad. Like, was he? I, I just didn't understand. Like, she's been with her dad. She's got the father. It seems like there are lots of uh, male figure, white male figures uh, in her life that are not threatening, that are not mistreating her, that seem to, you know, be trying to support her as she can. I didn't didn't quite know how to process that. Uh, The whole about Wolf insisting, 
uh, she mentions him in her interview to Charlie Rose. Uh, we'll hear that next week. I posted it online. If you all want to watch it, it's like a little less than 30 minutes. She talks about this book and The Lovely Bones. It was, it's from 2002, uh, if you want to check it out. Anyway, she mentions uh, Professor Wolf there and his, uh, I guess, uh, advice, admonition about remember everything, which if we think, if you, can think, if you think there's something suspicious about this book, maybe she lied, made this all up, that might lend authenticity that, you know, she put a lot of time and, you know, really invested herself to think and remember all the details and what he looked like and all the rest of it and this really happened and I just made a mistake. I guess. Uh, let's see. Even the description where she goes through repeating it over and over in my head, maroon windbreaker, blue jeans, rolled at cuffs, Converse all-star sneakers. Might have been a black dude who had all of that. Anthony Broadwater could have had all of that on exactly that day, and he didn't rape anyone. Uh, let's see. He said, I became a machine. I think it must be the way men patrol during wartime, completely attuned to movement or threat. The quad is not a quad, but a battlefield where the enemy is alive and hiding. He waits to attack. The moment you let your guard down, the answer is never let it down, not even for a second. Now, again, even in her own text, the threat of rape and sexual assault on college campuses, much like the University of Washington where I'm at, is generally not some nigra leaping out from the bushes on the quad. It's these fraternity parties and keggers. That would be the problem. And or Jeffrey Epstein. Woody Allen, my goodness. Not Anthony Broadwater. That is not who you need to be looking out for. And again, as he said, most of the people that are victims of rape, they know the assailants. You can just be checking your phone to see what predators do I know. I have no idea the phrase. You can put this as title of the book, pretty dark, but not black, black. How is that a description for anybody, much less the rapist? His skin, pretty dark, but not black, black. You could just give me the last half. What is black, black? Mr. Fuller talked about that. That's how you, not, not, not just this is bogus in Alice Siebold, but white supremacy, racism in general. How do you have things like off-white and black-black? Anyway, let's see. They couldn't get the head of the rapist, Pierkin. He's whimpering. That's like a little puppy. He's not even a man. It's like she's describing him as not quite measuring up as a white man. Some of it might even be, I think, Colin O'Hara was talking about him whimpering and such because maybe he, he was turned off about this officer going to maul these black guys. Like, oh, my God, what kind of white man are you? One of these savages might have raped me, and you're over here cowering like you got a problem. Get out of here, Ken. She said she didn't even remember if he went with, if he accompanied her to the station or not. He was so worthless as a white man. <laughs> wow, poor Ken. I wonder how he feels reading this. Let's see. Uh, oh, my God. She's shutting that. This is not even the police. 
I don't even know if they have guns or not. This is the Syracuse security, she says. She says that they made it clear this was not a Syracuse University matter. This was a city of Syracuse problem. On a professional level, this reflected well on them, but they were not as much university representatives that night as they were hunters with a fresh scent. Generally, hunters are after animals, generally. You generally don't hunt people, except niggers, but, I mean, that's, you know, that's just it. Generally. That type of language, and they were going to make this a movie? Like 2020, like they weren't thinking of making this a movie like 10 years ago, five years, like they were thinking of making this a movie recently. Syracuse officers out to hunt a raping Negro. No presumption of innocence. They didn't even have an identification at this point. Uh, let's see. Nigger knocker, Carl already mentioned that. I thought that immediately, like, we were going to crush some nigger skulls. Uh, they decided there was still some chance, since I hadn't acknowledged him, that the rapist would be loitering in the area of Marshall. <laughs> Double criminal. It can't just be that I'm a citizen strolling. I'm loitering. And a rapist. Incidentally, I find it such a major act of racism she just continues to say the rapist. I prefer she said the nigger. Anything would be better than the rapist. The rapist. He doesn't have a name. Like that's, I mean, you talk about essentializing. We've had white guests, Timothy Wise and company. You're essentializing me as my only identity as a white supremacist. This black male's entire identity is in brand, label, everything is the rapist. Is that how he's going to be referenced for the rest of the book? The rapist. There are all kinds of white criminals. Jeffrey Dahmer, I mean, real talk, is a rapist. I don't think they refer to him as that. They call him by his name. Sodomist, really. Child rapist. They don't even call Jeffrey Dahmer that. The officers go out. We're going to get this puke, he said. Rape is one of the worst crimes. He'll pay. This is the, uh, the caller in Ohio. That's like he's excited. Now, his daughter being gangster, she could have made that up. But just enough, you know, red flags and things in this that she could have made that up. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Maybe she embellished on it. At the end of the day, I've seen where white officers don't need a whole lot to be wound up. And just having one white woman who has made up or lied or maybe really was or whatever it was, is saying that she was raped by a black person, that generally is enough for white men to get, oh, we are ready to crack. Where's my nigger knocker? Let's get cracking. This was even before Charles Stewart. Remember that? This is like a decade almost before Charles Stewart right up the road in Boston. Same thing. White man shoots his pregnant wife, lies about it, blames a black man, threw a tear down the whole black section of town. Let's see. Gang rape. See, that's why I said it couldn't just be that his niece was raped. He was gang raped. Couldn't just be a regular old rape, one person. And gang rape. Hey, we had a gang rape at UPenn. That's what I thought first. Was she hanging out at those white frat parties? 
head you pin? Got to stay away from there, man. Those light guys are dangerous. Uh, let's see. <laughs> you can tell that now she's not ignorant about racism, white supremacy. She knows this is wrong. The caller said, hey, she could have called that out. She could have reported that like, man, I was raped. But that, but two wrongs don't make a right. Isn't that what they say? These guys are clearly students. They weren't Syracuse paraphernalia. Could have been on the football team or anything. That's not what we heard. And the way that she acknowledged it was so tacky. It reminded me of her lame, tacky apology. Uh, she says, uh, she's sick of all this, and I didn't like being the center of it, and blah, 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 and all the blah, blah, blah. Uh, she says, I didn't overlook what happened that night. Everything was wrong. It was wrong that I couldn't walk. It was wrong that I was raped. It was wrong uh, that the officer called uh, his niece ruined. She goes through this long list, and then at the end, oh, yeah, it was wrong that they beat on those niggers. Like, come on. Her at the center and first, it was wrong of what happened to me, and then, yes, it was, it was wrong that the niggers were beat. We're working on correcting me being raped. We'll get to the niggers later, maybe. Uh, troublemakers anyway, open. And the audacity they're going to be beat, they deserved it, even if they didn't rape you because they had an open container of alcohol. How much underage drinking has been reported in this book already? I keep saying that's, that's right there with the rape. Why they said it's so difficult to try to do anything about this epidemic because there's so much drinking involved in all this and people don't have good memories and all the rest of it. But these Negroes, they deserve to be beat for an open container, allegedly. Never talk back to an officer. No fussing, no fight, no flame. We do so. Uh, she said, now this is, many elements of this story are frightening. Many elements strike me as fiction. This strikes me as super true. She said, I saw six photos that reminded me of my rapist. But I was beginning to believe, literally, like you just started, I saw six photos that reminded me of my rapist. That could have been six random black people, totally innocent, at home chilling, watching the news, watching Big East basketball, Derek Coleman and the like, a few years early, but whatever. And now, because I look like, allegedly, your rapist, so-called, now I'm a suspect. Are you serious? And it's six black people like, oh, my God. They cheered. This reminded me of Norm, lots of Norm Stamper. Norm Stamper said the same thing. They would go out and shoot a suspect and come back and cheer. He said he compared it to a football game. They would come in and high-five and right on, good job. I can't believe you shot him. How you blew him away. I saw it, man. Why is that something to cheer about? You don't even know if you got the right guy. We haven't even had an identification at this point. Why is there anything to cheer about? It would, let's do quality work, bring the guy in, get the fingerprints, see what we got. Might have to go. It might not even be the guy. Any Negro will do. That's what it sounds like. 
Let's see. Armed and dangerous, of course, Negro. And then she dreams about killing. Like I said again, she didn't dream about other people violating her rapist, so-called. She dreams about doing the work herself, which she stated repeatedly. Uh, Anything else? Is that it? Yeah, I can leave it there. We'll get to Chapter 8 for next week. Did a little overtime for this week. Uh, folks should be satisfied. I gave folks the opportunity to uh, share. seemed like they were grand. Uh, we'll take one. Somebody can get anything in in like five seconds. All I want to add to it was uh, notice how the males that seem to know her on some personal level all seem to not have a like a view of her story of so-called being raped highly, just hearing how she spoke about it, including Ken, who was crouching down in the back seat, like he didn't want to be there as if he knew this story was a lie, but, you know, we're friends, so I'll ride with you. That's all I wanted to say. We can dig it at five seconds. can dig it at five seconds. Uh, we will... I just be mindful of the comparison. I didn't get to see all of the questions, but I see, like, the way that she talks about the males uh, in the book as we proceed, because we'll get to hear more about Gregory Madison as we – I didn't even hear – we didn't even get as far as I thought we would this week. I thought we'd get to the ID. We didn't get that. So how she talks about him, Ken, her dad, uh, all the male characters that we are presented with, just how they get uh, described, particularly comparison contrast between Mr. Madison, the black guys, and then – white guys. But more of this to come. Much obliged, much obliged for all the emails and live participation. Hopefully it was worthy of your time and energy. Our last book club of 2021, uh, we will pick up next year right back with Lucky. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow, uh, neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, white people and snow permitting, uh, it is supposed to be 25 degrees tonight and not supposed to be above freezing tomorrow. So Hopefully the weather will cooperate and we will be able to broadcast. Uh, Stay safe uh, for all the folks uh, who are out there. Hopefully you're not doing any end-of-year shenanigans that will put you in harm's way. All of that said, sobriety would be best, my God. For everything that we heard here, like, man, that might be, you might get a few licks upside the head with a nigger knocker, open container, even this holiday season, my goodness. Keep it sober. In addition to no spirits and alcohol, uh, if you are going to be out and about, crazy, um, you are not in any sort of verbal confrontation. Uh, if you see someone, they're being rowdy, loud, hostile, uh, you should be thinking that that person may be armed. In fact, they may have an entire armed gang at the ready. If you did not leave your residence prepared to die and or kill, exit. If you are in a vehicle, you are sober, buckled, and not on the cell phone, doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. And we need all of our attention. Be mindful about what's happening around us. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, the victims of white supremacy, 
we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. No name calling. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. (laughs)